podcast is brought to you by When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you easily offended? Does people having an opinion opposite of yours absolutely make your ass hurt? When people shit on your favorite pop culture brands, does it make you want to go postal? Do you feel the need to throw a fucking temper tantrum whenever people don't like the same things that you do? If you answered yes to any or all of these questions, then the Cheeky Bastards podcast is most definitely not for you. So we highly suggest you grow the fuck up and go fuck yourself. On September 6, 2022, if you're not some pearl-clutching candy ass who needs to speak to a manager every time someone has a different opinion than yours, or if you're not some limp-dick movie bro who gets queasy at the idea of somebody taking a shit on the films they also fucking did, then this just might be the podcast for you. So go grab a box of fucking tissues, grow a set of fucking nuts, and join us this fall for some hot takes that are guaranteed to chafe some fucking asses. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Need you cool. Are you cool? I'm cool. Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'm a get medieval on your ass. You're shut to this? Nah, I don't think so. Morlock chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the light. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service where we help rejuvenate your soul through the good works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I'm the Reverend Scott K, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. It's September, and that means we're now three-quarters of the way through our chronological journey of Tarantino's filmography. It also means that we've reached the end of Quentin's 2000s-era movies, and what better way to lead the decade than with his first foray into revisionist history with his epic war film, Inglorious Bastards. But before you start collecting the 100 Nazi scalps you owe us, it is my pleasure to finally welcome to the podcast the duo known as the podcast nobody asked for. Making his third appearance on the show, Mr. Ian Harries, and making his first appearance, Mr. Graham Jones. Welcome, gentlemen, and may Tarantino be with you both, always. It's good to be back, man. It's good to be back. It's good to finally be here. You, does, does Ian get to take the podcast home now that he's been on three, three times no, in like the no, World Cup? He, <laughs> no, uh. no, someone else has been on seven, so Ian is uh. not there yet. Ian, Ian's still an uh. infant. He's, he's on, the, he's on his, the JV team. He's not even on varsity yet. No, no. I've got to send my letter jacket home. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we get to have both of you on. It is a, is a pleasure. I enjoy your podcast immensely. I do have one little bone to pick before we ask you about it. Uh, <laughs> when you both said you were going to you know, start doing it 
four score and seven years ago when you decided to do a Fortnite, just being very British. I love that. I love that. Just the American audience, Fortnite. Is that that game? I, when you decided to do a Fortnite, you also said <laughs> that you might bring on some guests. And you said, what would guests like to talk about? I have sitting in a folder on my notes for almost three months now. Movies that should star Christopher Walken, and God damn it, I'm a little upset nice. that we haven't gotten to that, because the time is ticking for that poor man, and I think there's a lot of great films out there. So, I'm just saying, you know, anytime you want to do this Christopher Walken podcast, I'm just saying, let's, you know, what are we waiting for here? We'll, we'll, we'll get that, we'll get that. I also remember you once raised most unexpected full frontal male nudity yes. as a potential top three list, and I, we still Absolutely. have that. We, we have our, like, brainstorm Excel sheet, and that is written it's on, on there. there just like yeah full frontal male nudity brackets church of tarantino close brackets. <laughs> perfect we will wear that as a shirt <laughs> that's pretty perfect absolutely i mean i find it fun because when you go into a movie like that and all of a sudden you like you know in pulp fiction i said oh look there's there's bruce's willis and you're kind of like you're not expecting that you're like oh okay like there's a lot of those films where you know when when the schlong is out you're just like oh wasn't expecting that so are we, are we it saying- throws off some has it got to be like a hundred percent natural, or we like Jonah Hill in um, in Wolf of Wall Street with his prosthetic one? Uh, that wouldn't that also go for Mark Wahlberg in Boogie Nights it as was, well? Yeah, yes. we, we could also go for Willem Dafoe's stunt cock in yes. Antichrist, yes. which again it, it's trivia I bring up all the time. The he wasn't allowed to use his yes. own. <laughs> yeah, he was he wasn't allowed to use his own one because it was surprisingly and confusingly large. <laughs> Which the surprising feedback, part is want. good. The confusing <laughs> yeah. means like one, it was big, but the way it looked was so not like what you were expecting. Like so, when you say surprising, like my God, that's a man's penis right there. But then when you say it's also confusing, you kind of go, but it's got all kinds of weird proportions to it. Like that's what my mind is. It's almost like a weird wand from Harry Potter that just is like all crooked, <laughs> got knots on it. Extra it's like, isn't there? Too, too many extra <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm assuming it had an elbow. It kind of waves a bit. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, his, his little, little Defoe. <laughs> now that we're speaking, like, I'm actually curious. I'm like, there's got to be. I want to see a picture now because now that you can't, you can't say those things and not show it. Like, it should have been like the director's cut. Like, here's what we didn't show. And you just go, all right, there it is. There it is. If I'm willing to fall, I'm I'm trying to find any movie I can to find that full front of noodles. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you gotta you gotta show that BDE, that big dick energy. You know, it's not confusing. Well, what are you on about? <laughs> yeah, everyone's <laughs> looks like this. Egg, Egg, Eggers must be the guy to get Willem Dafoe's Willem out. Maybe that's what the lighthouse right, yes. was. It wasn't an actual lighthouse. Maybe. It, was, it was William Dafoe's penis. Probably in the lighthouse, he was the one who was supposed to masturbate <laughs> to the fucking mermaid. But they're like, oh, this is just the way your hand would move just is weird. So we, we're going to give it yeah. to Pattinson. So confused right now. <laughs> his, arm, <laughs> his arm's like going over his shoulder. Like that shouldn't, that's not the way that's supposed that's to move. That's what killed the so. seagull. That's the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's what the seagulls are coming for. They're like, what is this? I've never seen yeah. this kind of. Just all the seagulls calling their mates over. It's like, have you seen it? He just hangs out outside. It's. Yes, this, that needs to be a movie now. We need I, you guys get in touch with those guys. You just get, you know get with the Podfather. He's always got some kind of weird magical way of blowing a flute and suddenly someone's information drops down. Yeah. He can get this passed on. I think this is a great movie. Yeah, I have no I no idea how Petros from Caged In yes Pet, uh, the d- manages to do it. Like he'll just message us out with a 
loop. It's like, oh, here's this guy's details. It's like, oh, have you found... Like, you don't want to ask <laughs> Harry found it because you want deniability. <laughs> maybe it's those pictures you've been putting up of him in a pool without a shirt on. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. maybe. Might be the, he may have his own, his own OnlyFans we just don't know about. <laughs> so I would want to ask you both, where did the name Podcast Nobody Asked For come from? And who is the young lady? Or is it just a clip you grabbed who's at the end? Nobody asked for this. I love oh. the attitude. It's fantastic. I love that. That is my fiance. Oh, so. that's perfect. That's <laughs> literally, there's, perfect. Literally just sat her in. So she's a, she's a performer. I mean, literally sat her in front of a microphone. It was just like, can you just say nobody asked for this in a variety of different ways so we can have it at the end of our uh, theme tune? And then she just sat there and just delivered pure gold. The thing is, oh, I was. think the problem is, is she meant it a little too much. And it, that kind of hurts. Yeah. <laughs> it, it hurt a bit. It was a very, very heart-wrenching but performance. She didn't, she didn't she have to go very... method. Like, she was there. <laughs> oh, she was there. She was there. So the, the, the name actually comes from... So during lockdown, I started doing movie recommendations on Facebook. <laughs> and because I'm me, my t- quote would be, so two years ago today... My Facebook status was, today on, movie recommendations nobody asked for, but Ian is going to do it anyway because everybody is stuck inside and it's a good way to get people watching films I've wanted to talk about for a while, is The Cable Guy, which can be found on Amazon Prime. <laughs> and kept that, up, kept that going for a while to the point where I'd have random people messaging me just of, what, what's the movie going to be today? I watched last time and it was really good. And then Graham found a competition of doing a podcast yeah, and we suddenly just thought, which we miss, we let's go completely missed the deadline for. It was an ACAST thing, and they mm. were like, "Oh, if anyone's got ideas to submit," um, and then we were like talking about it, and then realised the deadline was in like three days, <laughs> and then. What happened? It was um, uh, the first series of lockdowns had ended, so you could kind of like go to people's houses for the first time, and we just got really drunk and recorded an episode that is. Pro- I have not listened to it back since we did it, but I'm sure it's awful <laughs> because I spent most of the time reading like facts off Wikipedia. I was definitely about six beers in by the end of it, but yeah, it's oh, it's, it's back back in the day when we were aiming for an hour. It, this and now it's true. Is. Yeah. It's it's an hour thirty five, hour forty, possibly more. It goes by fast though. Like you, when you when you start to listen to podcasts, like if they're good and entertaining, the hour forty, like oh man, I just I just flew by. I didn't even think about. It. If they're not good, and I would never name any that I've heard that aren't. <laughs> you just sometimes you're like five minutes in past the intro, you're like oh man, I, does this person do cocaine at some point? Does this thing pick <laughs> up? Like you know, because they can drag. A bad podcast can drag out, but yours is very very fun. I enjoy it. Very, very much so. Stop. I love it. I love the irreverence <laughs> of it. I love the irreverence of it. I, I think it's fantastic. I really do. So anyone who's listening to this, definitely check it out. I mean, Ian's been on for three times. And Graham, he looks like a Viking. You can't see him, but he could be a Viking. I'm, I don't think he's English at all. I think he, I think his family came. They conquered your island. He said, I think we'll stay a spell. And here I, I they think, are. Now I the, think that's basically it, yeah. I do have another question for you. And because, you know, anyone who listens to that podcast and maybe mine with Ian, how excited are you guys for Tom Brady to be back in the NFL again? <laughs> I know you're very, I mean, I know how much you love him. I mean, I know you were close to doing a podcast about your love for him. How excited are you that Tom Brady is back? I mean, it gives your jingle a little more <laughs> legs, right? I mean, you get to use it more. Yeah, I mean, I, I, our, uh, 
people who should retire now has like an extra meaning behind it, which is nice. <laughs> but yeah, oh, it'll be oh, fine. I it's... saw. Sorry, just just you gave you you gave me. I I must have blanked this out from my memory. I went and saw um, Top Gun Maverick last night, and there was an entire like three minute ad of Tom Brady advertising a watch. But his massive face was on the screen for three minutes, telling me to buy a watch. Yes, and it was. And then he pushes the camera away uh, from me at the end. What a just I thought about you guys when I saw that. Awful. I thought, my God, they must be just creaming their shorts at this three minutes on a screen. Just how big he is right there, just in their face. And just. And there's nowhere you can go. It's it's not socially accessible to leave the cinema at that point. <laughs> you could get a refund if you go back and say, why was this? Like, well, there was, a, there was a Tom Brady ad and there wasn't a warning beforehand. <laughs> this, this is very true. Warning. This next commercial may trigger you. Yeah, warning. it'll be fine. Because like, uh, him, him coming back means there is a possibility that he's forced to leave the league because he becomes shit. And there is nothing more in the world I want than Tom Brady like going the... Which we will we will fading into obscurity. Yeah, we will tentatively call it Peyton Manning syndrome. You know his last season where like you could tell like the game plan was perfect. Like he knew who he had to throw it to, but he couldn't physically yes. throw the ball that far anymore. That's what yeah. I want with Tom Brady, yeah. and then maybe a little bit more. But because I don't wish injury on athletes, I will leave it at. I just hope he ends badly. You mean you don't wish them out? Loud. I don't wish them in out your loud. head. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, but that's, yeah, vocally, that's a different thing. Different, Got different thing. Per- perfectly fine. <laughs> play fantasy football we do it every week oh <laughs> uh, yeah well yeah yeah so would you draft him on your team at all because no, i mean the man gets points no. the man gets points he's had his two best seasons in professional football the last two years on my buccaneers no he's had his two best oh, if, if, we, if, we, if we if we want to go proper um fantasy football talk uh you always want to go for the rushing floor and he does not have it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, never. Well, no, he can't run, but yeah, I've I've gone as I've 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 had Gronk before, and that's as close as I'll get to Tom Brady. Gotcha. All right. So before we jump into our episode, Super Bowl predictions, because this is September. When this comes out, this will come out the Friday before the season starts on Thursday. So as you're listening to this now in real time after we're recording this months in advance, less than a week will be the start of the season, which is the defending champions, the Los Angeles Rams hosting the Buffalo Bills. On Thursday night football, who is your prediction for this year's Super Bowl champion or team? So who, who do you got? Because I know you like to put a bet. Who do you got? Yeah, so I I, I think the Bills. I, I do think the Bills. Could okay, I, that, and that's that's a favorite. Yeah, which is, yeah, is always mean, a bit boring. Or, or it's going to be, because I feel like the Chiefs, Raiders, Broncos... Chargers are just going to all cancel them. What a division that became. But I think they're going to end up just cancelling each other out entirely. <laughs> what about the sneaky Patriots, though? The Patriots always seem to find a way, which I hate the Patriots, but they always seem to find a way to be sneaky and surprise the Bills. They always seem to find a way to sneak up on everybody yeah. sometimes. They almost did it last year. They, they, they obviously, but, you know, Mac Jones will be a little bit better. I mean, I'm hoping for them to just tank. I was hoping for the whole the team to just fold, but they won't do that. I don't hate them. I don't hate them as much anymore. Now that he's gone. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why that is. <laughs> um, it's because they're not winning without well, him. There is that. It's the cheating. I never, I don't mind about the winning. It's the cheating. Anyway. Well, that's an org- That's an organizational uh, thing. This is very true. That was a straight organizational thing. There was also the I weird mean, thing. With... Not that I'm giving him, a, you know, the pass, but that's definitely, that's an organizational. Because they were cheating his first Super Bowl and he was still young. Yeah, yeah. They were cheating on the Rams Super Bowl. So they, you know, this that's a hist- historical thing that the Patriots and Bill Belichick have been doing for the 20 plus years also weird that bill belichick and the whole like massage parlor thing went away very quickly didn't we're not uh, well, sorry it wasn't it was craft it wasn't belichick yeah when you're a billionaire yeah, yeah. That it's stuff easy away. to make it go away 
Yeah, um, I, I don't know. It's, it's pretty boring, but I think probably the, the Bills are up there. I'm going to say if the Ravens are going to do it in the Lamar Jackson era, it's got to be this year. Last year was horrendous in terms of injuries for the Ravens. I mean, I, I literally drafted Gus Edwards and then got the notification later that day that he'd been in, he'd done his ACL. So, I don't know, with a little bit of luck, maybe we can make a push for it. But yeah, it's hard to see past some of the some of the big names. Yeah. If I had to go like out of left field, not again. I still think the Bills are going to get it, but I, I against the green Chargers yeah. possibly. This could be the year where they stop charging. Oh, I would love nothing more than Baker Mayfield to win with the Panthers. It's not it won't, it won't happen. happen. Yes, I know. I know what you mean. The Browns are going to do well. They are going to regret taking him. He's going to be in prison yeah. sooner than later. I don't know what know what his deal is with having to go to massage and get his dick touched or whatever he's doing. But Jesus Christ, man. Oh, should have gone to the Patriots. Holy cow, put it away. Good Lord. I mean, the guy makes enough money as it is. It's not like he, women aren't going to throw themselves at him. Like, good Lord, what's wrong with you? Also, what's wrong with the Browns to give him a guaranteed contract? Uh, because because, <laughs> because they're the Cleveland Browns. Yeah. They're just the fucking Browns. That's why. That's just They're just that team. I'm, of course, going to go with the Bucs, and I'm going to just do some historical stuff like I do on this podcast. The last four even years but odd Super Bowls have been won and played by Tom Brady, and we are in an even year odd Super Bowl. The only reason that would be good for both of all of us is, one, it'd be a great Super Bowl win because we won't have another one for 30 years. I'll probably, this will probably be the last one before I die. I'm 46. This, this is it. This is our last hurrah. My great-great-grandkids go, oh, great-grandpa liked this team way back in the day. <laughs> And Tom Brady will officially retire on top. He will. That'll be it for him. That's his riding out. You guys can finally no longer have Tom Brady. And you can create a new jingle of like a like the Ding Dong the Witch is Dead kind of thing <laughs> from the Wizard of Oz. You can get a brand new one for Tom Brady. So and there we go. We're doing this exactly prior to the season. So we'll have to look back in February see if any of well, us. Well, that's not not to not to ask questions on your podcast, but Feel if free. it takes this is to Graham. If it takes. Brady winning another Super Bowl for Brady to retire next year. Would you be okay with him winning a Super Bowl? No. No. All right. I'd never want to see that man <laughs> smile. <laughs> well, then don't go back and see any movie for the next month or so this because I'll tell you true. what, his face is going to be looking right at you. <laughs> All right. So let us jump into the questions. We're going to give them to Graham the sense as Mr. Ian has already done so, but he's going to jump in at the end for one before we jump into this episode, which is probably going to run around seven hours long. So <laughs> buckle in, folks. You thought the Kill Bill was long. Here we go. Mr. Jones, mm. this is probably a dumb question, but I always ask it to see if I've done the vetting process properly. Yeah. Are you, in fact, a huge Tarantino fan? Does the Pope shit in the woods? Yes, of course I am. He is. He does a lot of things <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, probably favorite director, definitely uh, three of his, three or four of his films in my top 10. Like, I'm a, I'm a huge convert. I'd like to hear that. Good. What was your gateway drug into the Tarantino universe? So, I was thinking about this. Um, I have a very, this is it's quite a weird one, but I have a very vivid memory of a huge billboard of the Pulp Fiction poster being on like the side of the road. This will mean nothing to anyone other than Ian, but on the side of the Uxbridge Road. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and remember seeing it, but I was, it came out in 94, right? I was six at the time. So obviously never got to see it until much later, but that image of Uma Thurman was ingrained in my skull. So as soon as I became of age, is that the right thing to say? I yeah. um, absolutely had to seek it out and watch it. So there was like this real like imprinting of that poster to 
then having to see the film as soon as I could. Um, so that was probably, so Pulp Fiction was the first movie I saw. I also remember very vividly being on holiday on a little island um, in the channel called Jersey, which is where your new Jersey is named after. Does it smell like bad? <laughs> yeah, it does actually. Yeah, I've, I've been to <laughs> oh, both. Good. good. I mean, it's full of... T- it's, fa- it's, it's, fam- it's famous for tax evasion and cows. Exactly. Fantastic. That's, that's it. That is the two two things you, you get there. But they had a HMV on the uh, on the high street and I remember buying a special edition version of Reservoir Dogs on DVD that had like 20 odd discs. And yeah, instead of spending my like holiday money on anything like remotely related to the destination or of memorabilia <laughs> i bought tarantino dvds so um yeah and then ever since i've just watched and owned everything he's made fan fucking tastic so i think i might know what your favorite movie is but i'm gonna ask it anyways what is your favorite tarantino film yeah so again ever ever since from the start was pop fiction loved it and then nothing could move it and actually probably arguably my favorite film of all time did get to a point that the film that we're going to talk to talk about today rode it very close, and I, I do think that perhaps *Inglorious Bastards* is the better film of the two, but I prefer. Fair. But Pulp, I think *Pulp Fiction* just holds so much in terms of like I think you guys spoke about when you did the podcast on the on the episode on it, where there's a lot of it holds so much purpose for and kind of kicked off so many things in cinema and there's a lot of a lot of movies that we've had since that owe a lot to it so i think for that reason the fact it was the first film i saw and yeah i guess there's that nostalgia bias as well um that it's got the pulp fiction yes i mean it's a great touchstone i mean it does it really did kick off modern cinema like as i think as uh, ian and i covered like all the a24 people out there you don't have that without this Miramax, Pulp Fiction, Tarantino run that starts in 1994. That really, you know, this wave of new, you know, independent cinema that we got and all the great directors that came from the 90s really, because this movie did so well and was so unexpected, it's kind of like the Nirvana of music <laughs> uh, because Nirvana killed basically hair metal. It kind of brought different rocks on, brought grunge in. And I feel like Pulp Fiction kind of killed off the action-heavy Arnold Schwarzenegger, Stallone movies that we were getting nonstop in the 80s, towards the end of the 80s especially and then also we got you know really great cinema that came out mm-hmm. of it so obviously i'm 100 with you on this otherwise i wouldn't have a podcast <laughs> named it <laughs> in your opinion yeah what is tarantino's most underappreciated film uh so i i don't want to be that guy that copies ian but um i completely agree with his choice i think it has to be death proof it's i think everything else has had a level of critical acclaim and i think death proof dizziness certainly over here it didn't get it and i do think that there is so we got it as a standalone movie over here we didn't get the double bill we didn't get the fake trailers Mm -hmm. apart from the dvd release i think you have to have it as the grindhouse experience i think it adds so much more when you've got all of those trailers you've got planet terror as well but yeah it's it's such a it's such a good film some great acting kurt russell's fantastic zoe i forget her surname the um yeah is is just so good in it as well and i think probably her first role kind of stepping out from just being a out and out stunt yeah. woman as well so yeah it's it's brilliant so many cool set pieces with the cars and um yeah pe- more people need to watch it but as i say as part of the, the entire grindhouse experience agreed who is your all-time favorite character in the massive tarantino verse so this one again it's similar to where i say like a favorite movie i've gone for my mm-hmm. favorite not necessarily best because the best character without a doubt, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it later today, is, is Hans Lander. Like, Hans Lander is one of the best characters in cinema, let alone in, in Tarantino's uh, universe. 
I mean, Christopher's performance, again, I'm sure we'll get into in detail later, but that is just up there with, with one of the best. If not, probably my favourite, and maybe I'm a bit biased, but it's probably one of my favourite performances in cinema. Imagine if we didn't talk about it. <laughs> just just oh? skipped over it. Yeah. Yeah. Which one, which one, which one, which one yeah. was Hans Lander? <laughs> the yeah. only guy that took an off item from this, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and then, so I was thinking, right, okay, so who, who is my favourite? And I, I kind of wanted to be a bit niche and a bit hipster with this and go for someone like Nice Guy Eddie or like Hattori Hanzo or something. <laughs> but I'd be lying if I would say it was anyone other than Jules Winfield. I think... He, he he truly is and that performance completely like started my love affair with samuel jackson i absolutely love the man i've quoted him in a wedding speech previously <laughs> i'm probably one of the only people that owns sign of a killer on dvd um and i even went willingly sat through big game as well so um yeah jules jules wins it for me every day I, i'm with you i think we talked about it. i've talked about somebody and he's the guy who's able to get george lucas to give him a purple lightsaber so samuel jackson is he's the bee's knees as the kids say right the kids are still saying that right no yeah bee's knees no okay. something like that. maybe i'm on that touch <laughs> that'll bring us to the two of you getting asked this, but I'll ask Graham first, so Ian can can think wise. Oh, I've I, I've been re, I've been researching this while you've been asking Graham's <laughs> I, questions. Fantastic. <laughs> Whose career would you like to see Tarantino give a boost to with his last film, if in fact it is his last film? So I was trying to think of people in a similar vein of like your John Travolta's and the like, whose careers maybe were waning or not necessarily going in the direction of starring in a Tarantino mm -hmm. film. And I was racking my brains after you, you kind of uh, posed this. And I'm going to go with Jim Carrey. Oh, did not see that coming at all. Nice. I think he's gone like he's not done a lot over the last few years. I think maybe like a couple of uh, like Sonic <laughs> Is, is kind of his, his main... Credit where it's due, that film is hugely underrated. Apparently he plays pretty well too because he's he's living off of it. It shouldn't work, but it is legitimately really funny. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but there's also kind of looped into that is his um, his outburst after Kick-Ass 2 when he was like, oh, I didn't realise this film was going to be so graphic and blah, blah, blah. And so I'd like him to then go and do a, a Tarantino film, which is obviously <laughs> going to be even more graphic than Kick-Ass 2. So, yeah. Jim Carrey. I like that answer. Mr. Harry's. Yeah, so I, I was thinking along the similar line of like the the John Travolta person. So mm -hmm. someone who w was known for one thing and then had a bit of a dip. Um, so I was thinking possibly John Travolta. <laughs> Um, just getting John Travolta back in to do his things. Or even it's just a swan song for him. Just yeah. finally, John can yeah. stop acting. Just You're done, John. But with the thing with John Travolta is always that, because he was known for rom-coms and stuff, and then Tarantino kind of took him in. So Nicolas Cage would have been my answer about a year and a half ago, but yeah. I don't think he needs a boost anymore. <laughs> I would still like to see him, though. In, oh, yeah. I'm yeah, yeah, holding yeah. out hope, like, all hell, that he's going to make the last yeah. one. Even, if, even just to make the last one. I don't care what it is. Yeah. So what I was thinking was I wanted to take someone who's kind of known for comedy and then put, you know, someone who's got the acting chops of a comedian, similar to Jim Carrey, really, but put them in a in a comedy film. So I was considering Melissa McCarthy. Oh, OK. Um, OK. But 
but she has now also done very serious stuff and I think people yes. take her seriously. So I'm going really left field and going for Sharon Horgan. Oh, okay. So Sharon Horgan's an Irish actress who is really fucking good and really fucking funny. And even though she keeps being in critically acclaimed stuff, she never seems to have the credit that is warranted her. Like she was so good in a TV series that I weirdly stopped watching it. So she was she was in <laughs> Catastrophe with Rob Delaney. Um, and it's about this couple, and I got so invested in it, I had to stop watching it, because it was like, I don't want to know what happens anymore. I got to an episode where it was wow. on a good footing, and it was like, yeah, I'm just going to leave here. I'm good. I'm out, guys. <laughs> I'm out. I don't need to. But I, I think she would be, I, I think this would, she's got all the skill for it, and I think this would really kind of throw her into the public eye, like she deserves to be. Oh, kind of like what Melanie and yeah. got from exactly. this film. Great answers, gentlemen. Great answers. Here's some fucking facts. Jack. And now it's the portion of the show where I get to ask you questions and you get to I get to quiz you on how well you know the things that have happened in this film. And actually the first segment starts with your great jingle that is playing right now. Fucking fucking I love the fucks given jingle. It's, I never get tired of it. I absolutely love it. And I love that you tell us to go fuck ourselves. I, I definitely bow to you for that. Well done. Now, this is going to be a bit of surprising. How many times is the word fuck used in all its abilities in this film? I'll start with you, Ian. From memory, I don't, given that the last film we talked about, or Tarantino directed film we talked about was Pulp Fiction. Like <laughs> it was, yeah. yeah it was I, huge, I don't yeah. think a lot. I don't like. I don't. But I also don't know if I don't remember it because I was reading the majority of the film rather than hearing the fucks. That's fair. So I don't. I don't think a lot. I'm just going to say like twenty thirty. You are very close, Mr. Jones. What is yeah, your so guess? Intre- no, no, you're not going to be about This is like the price is right. Do I go one cent What's or do the, I? Uh, so just just so we're clear, is this a fuck in any language? Yes. And to be fair, the there's only one character, as I went back through this, that says fuck, who is not American in the movie. You potty mouths, aren't you? Many of the foreign actors actually don't say it. The only one who does is the man who gets beaten to death yeah. with a club and tells him to fuck you. Yeah, I yeah, because it's something like only thirty percent of the film is actually in English, right? Which um, always blows my mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah. Given given the clue that you gave, I'm going to go for twenty two as my guess. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It actually was nineteen. You're very close. This is his least swear filled film. This is the one that comes in. I think total number of swears is around 37, 38 total. And half of them are fucks. And most of them are Brad Pitt. And a lot of them are at the end of the film when they capture him. He says it like five or six times like in a row. And for the majority of the time, we don't get a lot of fucks in it. Body count. He does make up for the amount of fucks. How many dead bodies are in this film? How many deaths? We'll start with Mr. Jones. How many deaths are in this film? Now, I will also preface this. The number fluctuates. It is high, but it fluctuates depending on how you count all the deaths, especially at the end. Hey, don't we'll help that. Don't help him. This is the official number I've found. I'm not, I'm not helping him, but this is the official number I've been finding. But again, if we went through and probably sat there, it may be yeah, higher I mean, or like, lower. Given that the, there's, there's the cinema scene, that's what. Um, so the cinema holds, I think from memory, is it 350 people, they say, because it's when it gets downgraded. So there's mm-hmm. at least 350 
because no one's getting out of there. Let's let's be realistic there. Then, I mean, you've got the Stiglitz Supercut that adds quite a few. I'm going to go 420. Okay. <laughs> Someone's got something on their mind. All right. <laughs> Mr. Harry's, right, what is your let's, number? Let's think this through, shall we? So, yeah, I, I think it's 350. In the So the question, question okay. is whether I think it is more or less than 70 deaths outside of that. Um, I'm going to say more, mm-hmm. so I'm going to say 421. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, this is what I want to talk about. So, yes, there are 350. We never do know if they fill up the full theater. We don't know that for a fact. Obviously, they show like it looks like a field, but we don't know for 100%. The number that I keep coming up on, so that's why I said I preface this. So, this is where even I'm thinking it might be higher than the number that I've been able to find. The number I find is 301 is the number they count. Now, we have to then consider, are people sitting there counting the actual people they could see in the theater? Because I don't think there's 350 extras. You yeah. know what I mean? Because obviously the way they're filming it, that's where this number can fluctuate. But the number I've been finding is 301. So I'm assuming those who counted to this counted the extras they could actually see in the film. So again, the number I found is 301. I can tell by especially Ian's face. He does not believe well, in any of this. <laughs> and he is going to be calling the Academy as soon as we're off. And he's been listen, I need to recount. Here in America, you do. Well, I mean, if, if <laughs> You're an American Citizen right now, you don't believe in the count. If, if we're going for that, st- yeah. you think this is a Stalin election? Yeah, Stalingrad had happened by this time. So if we're going for the length of the film, yeah, we're talking exactly. millions, millions so, of people died yeah, in a glorious Millions passage. are dead. All my listeners, I don't want to see anything on socials. Tell me to go fuck myself. I'm just going by the numbers I can find. If you feel like sitting there and going frame by frame and counting every person and make sure you've got them right, and you're not overcounting them, feel free. Ooh, some bare feet sightings. How many bare feet do we see in this film? So but bare feet, not just revealing footwear. Bare feet. Then no shoes on feet. So uh, my guest on Kill Bill got caught up in the love of Sophie Vettel's feet, but she was in open-toed shoes. That is not barefoot, albeit it's just a strap and some soles, but it is not barefoot in the connotation, the Webster's Dictionary definition of bare feet. So how many bare feet do we get to see? Is that dictionary definition next to a picture of Tarantino salivating? <laughs> yes, it is actually, and there may or may not be a picture of William Defoe's nether regions right underneath it. <laughs> who's going? Uh, who, who's, who's going? Ian, go ahead. Ian, yeah, Ian, you're, I think um, you're up this time. I, again, I I don't think it is a very foot heavy film. I'm gonna say you see the same foot twice. See, this is what I was gonna say. Diane Kruger, right? There's I there's yeah. okay. scene with um Diane Kruger does have yeah. two moments in this film of having at least one of her yeah, feet the, the, shown. The, the, yes, the, that is correct. In two the Nazi scenes. Cinderella scene, if you will. The Nazi and there Cinderella must be, scene. Uh Shazana yep. at the beginning is running barefoot across the field. Shoshana, yep. Mm-hmm. But so how many thinking? Uh, so I'm gonna go with Three. You're going with three. Ian, what was your guess? Did you say uh, two? I, 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 I said two, but I forgot. Shoshana, so I, already th- <laughs> I, I think two, and it's the same foot. So two. Okay, you both are wrong. It is actually twelve. Oh. And here's where oh. the surprise comes. It comes during the bastard scene where they end up beating the man to death. They are stripping the soldiers' uh, bare yes. feet. They have got soldier bare feet, about eight to nine Nazi soldiers' bare feet in the film, adding into our Shoshana run and the two of Diane Kruger in the in the Tarantino version of Disney's Cinderella. I would watch that. <laughs> Hopefully that's film 10, right? <laughs> I would 100%. That would be so great. So good if that would be. And Hans Lund has got to come back for, for reasons we don't know. That's what he did in a prior life. <laughs> He was also a shoe salesman, and that'd be great. <laughs> Next up, the motherfucking Tarantino verse. All right, so now this comes to the point of 
I will now give you a little information on the connections in the Tarantino verse that we have in this film. We have three solid and two sort ofs, and here are solid. Number one. Mr. Lieutenant Archie Hickox is related in some way. We believe, due to the fact of the person he's related to, Mr. English Pete Hickox from The Hateful Eight, I believe he's a cousin or relative of that sort, with Pete being in America for so long and being the scoundrel that he is, I don't know that he was able to spread his seed across your homeland in time to father or be grandfather to Archie. So I believe one of his lesser rude brothers was the main branch in that tree of the Hickox family. Number two. Mr. Donnie Donowitz is the father of True Romance's Lee Donowitz, the man who helped produce Coming Home in a Body Bag and who also was killed after throwing coffee at his assistant. So, a brutal police shooting that was not was not legitimate. He got shot for throwing tea at his assistant. Number 3. The third one, Mr. Private Hirschberg, has a pack of red apple cigarettes in his uniform. So, red apple cigarettes makes its appearance again. And if you're not looking for it, you'd miss it. But it is again in the scene where the bastards have those German soldiers and they're going to beat one of them to death with a bat. As he leans forward and talks, you can see the red apple cigarette pack coming out of his breast pocket. Red Apple has also, of course, been in Pulp Fiction, From Dust Till Dawn, Four Rooms, Kill Bill, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm surprised it's not an actual pack of cigarettes at this point. However, the Once Upon a Time Hollywood advertisement really would make that cigarette never <laughs> viable again when he's spitting. This tastes like shit. So that would really pretty much put the kibosh on that brand. Our sort ofs. The song that plays when Major Hellstrom arrives at Shoshana's movie theater is the exact same song Tarantino used when the bride is swinging one of the crazy eight around by her sword that is through his chest. A great, great moment in that film. The other, Mr. Donnie Donowitz, uses the name of Antonio Margheriti, the name of a real Italian director who directed Rick Dalton in the fake film Operazione Dynamite in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And those are your Tarantino connections. And those were the facts. Jack. And now the gospel, according to the almighty Tarantino. Chapter 9, Inglorious Bastards. All right, we're jumping in. A bunch of Inglorious Bastards jumping in to talk about Inglorious Bastards. As you were mentioning, Mr. Jones, the dialogue is in English for approximately 42% of the running time. German gets 28%, French is 22%, and the amazing <laughs> Italian scene is 1% of the film. But it's maybe the most glorious 1% you've ever seen in your life. Here's a little fun fact if you did or didn't know this, but Mr. Quentin Tarantino never learned French or German translations of his dialogue. He would direct all the non-English scenes on intuition and just felt like they nailed it and he was good with how it came out. They could have actually put in different words and Tarantino would not have known as long as they sold it. So there you go. That's a man who just trusts his audience, just trusts his people. Chapter one is what we're going to kick off with. Once upon a time in Nazi-occupied France. Did either of you know that this was the original name yeah, for the I film? Yeah, I was reading that, and huh. um, yeah, it just ended up ended up being the the uh, the, the title of the first first act. But um, I I kind of do. You, do you think it's a better title? Well, because but there's also this whole thing about Inglorious Bastards with the spelling mistake, right? Yeah, <laughs> which we will which we will get to. I think I have solved that. Yeah, I think you're gonna like where I come up with. I think you'll appreciate that's in chapter two. But I think you will okay. appreciate where I think it, yeah, no, where, I, where it came do, from. Would it be a better title? I don't know. Possibly, but then would we have got Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Uh, that's what I, I was I, thinking. I think in hindsight, think, would we want two Once Upon a Time? I think times? we would because then we would definitely have a third. He would en- okay. he would end All up right, doing like his you. unofficial Once Upon a Time trilogy or something like that and this yeah. is where cinderella <laughs> comes Boom. in uh, once upon a time first, guys the 10th tarantino <laughs> in stone <laughs> age england there it it's is. gonna be cinderella <laughs> Mr. done 
Oh, God. <laughs> breaking, so breaking news. So <laughs> <laughs> now, I covered this scene pretty heavily. It's my first Bible study, obviously, because it is considered by Tarantino to be his greatest scene he's ever written. Prior to that, as I said in the True Romance episode, it was the Sicilian scene. And as I looked at this scene again, you can look back and see some similarities to where he looked at his Sicilian scene, especially in the conversation at the table, and you could see where he kind of expanded upon where he would have probably liked to have gone with that scene had it not been such a truncated scene that didn't have as much weight to it as this scene does, obviously, to open the film. Which of these scenes do you prefer, gentlemen? Which scene do you prefer more? I mean, I know they're both classic scenes. I feel it still can be comparing apples to oranges because this is a major plot point of the scene. We're getting a character introduction where the other one is more of we need to move the story along. Moment that just happens to be a great scene in the middle of a film. Mr. Jones, I'll start with you. Which scene did you prefer more? The glass of milk scene or the Sicilian? I, I can't see past the glass of milk. I, I think it's one of my favorite favorite scenes in cinema as i think as i mentioned previously like it's it it's just the the building of the tension the switching between the languages everything's done so delicate even the right at the beginning of the scene where she just kind of she's pegging up the washing and she just slightly moves it out of the way and you see the the ss cars coming and it's yeah it's it's perfection i think so um yeah it's gonna gonna be the uh the glass of milk, Mr. Harry's. Yeah, not to not to parrot Graham <laughs> precisely, but it's it's the glass. I I think it is one of the best introduction scenes of any movie. I would agree. I like how it it isn't shot like a World War Two thing at all. It is shot like either a play or a western, and yes. it there's just nothing. It is a perfect encapsulation, I think, of everything that Tarantino. Like the dialogue is incredible. Even if that was all of the, like, if say it was just a it was just a short he released. Just based on that, Hans Lander would still be my favourite Tarantino character. He would still be <laughs> one of the best, you know, like, written characters there is. And he would have won the Oscar for short yeah. <laughs> action yeah. short for that year at the Oscars. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it is just, like, the, the Sicilian scene is still brilliant. But this is, like, you could you could just show this as, like, a lecture on how to piece together a scene, right? It is, there is nothing about it you could improve on. It's close to, I think, perfect in a in a scene as you could get. It's phenomenal. It truly, truly is. And I really go into some real depth of it on the Bible study. But there are so many things re-watching it that I caught that, you know, because normally you're sitting there watching it. You're watching it as a fan. You're just, you're just you're falling in love with the moment and you just get sucked into the story and the performances. There is so much about Christoph Waltz's performance that happens from just the time he shows up to even starts talking. By the time he reaches the moment that he sends the girls outside and he's going to talk to Mr. Lapadit, he has already ascertained that there are Jews hiding in the house as he already kind of believed when he showed up. But he wasn't 100% sure that they were still there. But just from his interactions with the girls, he has already used their body language, some of the stuff they do that he knows before he even sits down to talk to Mr. Lapadit that he's got the answer he needs. He's already, he knows. As soon as they walk up there, he knows. And, you know, when you first watch it, like I wasn't paying attention to that before. I'm watching as, as a, you know, just as in a rewatchable movie. But now, obviously, going back through these films and really starting to, you know, put the uh, magnifying glass to them, you just sit there and you watch it. And if anyone just watches him, watch no one else, watch everything Londa does, everything he does is so purposeful. It's all there as a part of a detective. I've called him the evil Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Pai Mei is evil Yoda. Hans Landa is evil Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. He his ability to deduce things and find things for the you know the horrible people he's doing it for it's unbelievable. It rivals the Sherlock Holmes 
books and movies that they put out there. And he does it without, you know, any big fanfare. Like, he just does it in the subtle subcontext of the scene. And he's not, you know, pulling out his weirdly disgusting dick like... <laughs> like, like, like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> like Defoe. But, yeah, like Sherlock <laughs> like Holmes Sherlock does. But, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, Sherlock, man. But what he does interestingly pull out is a comically oversized pipe. Yes. Very much like Sherlock yes. Holmes. Yes. Yes. Which, there's, there's a level of absurdity in that, <laughs> in a scene that is so serious. But then also, actually, weirdly, now you say, about the Sherlock Holmes things. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a nod. I think it could be a nod, but I think what it also is is when he does it, it's after he's having the second glass of milk. And at that moment, Mr. Lapaditas finally sealed the deal for him because he went, he goes through and names all the kids, which why the fuck would you know their names and ages if you haven't spent some time with them? I mean, you're in a small farming community, but how well do you know this family? They don't live nearby. They live somewhere in this rural area. So that that was his you know signature, but that second glass of milk is celebratory, and when he pulls out the pipe, it is such a I've got the bigger dick than you moment. Like it really is. It's comical, but it's like ha, I'm gonna smoke my pipe, and it's just like at every turn he's bigger and better than Mr. Lapidie, and Mr. Lapidie has no idea that he's just been set up from the moment he pulled up onto his property. He already knew, but he had to make sure, and he knew that they were gonna tell him what he wanted to know, whether they knew that or not. And so, obviously, it's great writing, but really, the Christoph Waltz character of Hans Landa. I mean, as you were saying, I think he is the greatest villain ever in cinema history. And I'm a huge fan of Star Wars and Darth Vader, and I always love Darth Vader. But no villain I can think of, especially in the first three scenes that we actually get to see Hans Landa show up in, do I, and even to this day, have my chest feel tight, feel nervous, feel like he just commands, he's so cerebral, he's just, he brings you in with kindness, and you think, oh, I'm smarter than this guy, and he's always a seven steps ahead of you. He makes every scene he's in, something in that scene, feel like the most, I mean, a glass of milk, I've never been more terrified <laughs> of a glass of milk in my entire life. Than when he then that scene. I I think it's really interesting the fact of the whole um like you say you draw in with the personality but there's this like in because he is he's charismatic he's I don't want to say he's likable but he comes across as likable as a person and what he uh, he's you know he's got a means to an end. Um, I don't want to compare our former prime minister to um uh <laughs> to uh Hans Lander. but it's very similar in the sense that they went from you know if, if, if you look at what kind of the way that people are drawn in by this kind of cult of personality and the, and the charisma and you kind of completely miss all of the underlying diabolical evilness underneath yeah unfortunately uh we we had that with uh, <laughs> with Boris Johnson and we've we've had it with Hans Lander. <laughs> yeah I think that the, the film is kind of very good with that is is, is why it's so good to rewatch as well because you pick up on a lot of only with a rewatch do you realize how many steps ahead he is of everyone um, and there's also a couple of other scenes in the film where it's fun to try to gauge where people have figured out what's happening yes so yes. in this scene it is trying to figure out exactly like you said like i think he knew going there yes i think he had a yeah. definite he was like i think they're there but I think he was like, it's been nine months, so there is a chance that in the nine months, their yeah. escape has been made to get out of the town. But if they're there, which I think they are, he already knew where they were going to be. He needed the family to give it up without ever yeah. asking them a single question. So by the time he sits down and asks the first question, he's almost 100% sure that I've got him. Because there's are. a couple of other scenes, which again, we will come to, of like the, the strudel scene. 
like there's a question of where he figured that out <sighs> even the operation kino scene where he figured that out and then not just that but also the flip side of that is when did michael fassbender's character figure out when kind of the the jig was up so it is it's is a very good film to re-watch for for that side or did yeah, he ever. exactly it's, it's very <laughs> very interesting to and again because it's tarantino he doesn't spoon feed any of it to you either like all no. th- all three of oh. us could have a different uh, different mm-hmm. perfectly correct answer to that question. It is just on mm-hmm. us to figure out where we think that line is. And the breadcrumbs are always there. And I think one of the reasons I like I'm, I'm really having a great time doing this podcast is I get to go back and instead of just being a fan and like oh hey have you ever seen this movie and I get to sit down with people or you know show my son or my kids like hey have you watched this and you know I get to enjoy watching a film that I love with them or with friends it's like you know he brings it back out of the theaters kind of thing is I'm forcing myself to really look at it because I want to be able to have a discussion with people and really look at what's going on and it's at these moments that I'm all of a sudden I like almost want to slap myself for not have noticing this way before but I'm really now taking the time to look at everything the way he's crafted it and you just go holy shit like it's oh, it's like it's been there the whole time and i've just been on the ride and not noticing like oh, what a great <laughs> ride and then all of a sudden i'm like son of a bitch <laughs> he's walt disney he's everything is for the purpose there's no the trash cans are 10 feet away from each other for a purpose you know not just like oh that's a really good design my one question and this comes up a lot and there is there's some of a discussion that's been online of why people think this is but i think i have a different opinion i want to find yours is why do we think he lets Shoshana go? I don't know how much you know of me, Graham. Ian knows a little bit. I was in the, um, the American military. I was in the Army. I fought in Iraq when it started in 03 to 04. So I have a little bit of knowledge, military, but also with weapons. And I can say this without any um, ego, as as the great Victoria Hanzo would say. But there's no way in the world he was going to hit her with that with that pistol. Yeah. She was too far ahead of him. Even It's a great tense shot. But in reality, he fires maybe. If he's lucky, if he's judged the wind and the way the bullet's going to drop and the trajectory, if he, maybe, maybe. He gets lucky and wings her and hits her. It's not going to be a headshot. This isn't some video game that doesn't really believe in physics. This is not one of those games where you can just jump off a building, spin 360, fire a shot, and kill somebody. That's not reality. There's no way he's going to hit her. However, she's running to a tree line in a pretty wide open pasture. And it's not like this is like, you know, all of a sudden she disappears into the woods of like uh, the Lord of the Rings where all of a sudden like it just becomes a deep forest in like a matter of two steps. They could have easily caught up to her. They could have gotten on those motorcycles and run her down, and she never makes it even out of this village, let alone to Paris. Why do we think he lets her just get away? It's a very good question. I wonder, and it's difficult to say because the the likelihood of him necessarily running into her again, it's it's hard to say that he, you know, that's definitely going to happen because there is a bit of it, you know, he is the Jew hunter, you know, it's the hunt, it's the thrill of the chase. Is he kind of, you know, is this something that he's setting himself up for so he doesn't want to kind of get it, you know, get all out of the way in one go and kind of have that thrill of the chase that's maintained? But then I guess the flip side to that is how do you know that you're going to come across her again? You don't necessarily. So I think that could be an interpretation, but to say definitely is is quite tricky because she could have just vanished, right, and never to be seen again um, unless he did have a, you know, an extensive history on her family he knows that she's going to go to paris she knows that she's got family there whatever possibly i don't know but that's the only thing i can think of really yeah because it's certainly not to be nice <laughs> yeah i mean like my no well, my yeah. kind of reading of it is quite similar so i my idea of hans lander is that it's a game like this is all a game to him right like he's basically getting mm-hmm. off 
on being the cleverest person in the room and figuring all of this shit out. So I think he's just let her go because it's, you know, it's like the thrill of the chase, right? Like, well, I'm going to, it's, I'm giving, you know, the game's still on. I still get to do this and I'm going to figure out where she is and I'm going to hunt her down and kind of all of that. So I I think it's a mix of ego and this just all being, because I, my kind of reading of the end as well is I think he's just bored. I think he's just he's just oh, bored yeah. of all yeah, of this stuff be. and he doesn't want to do it anymore. My reading of him has always been that this is... He is evil, but he's doing this because he thinks it's fun, which, if anything, is even more evil. But for him, it doesn't even seem to be an ideological thing. He's just like... He likes being the cleverest person in the room. And he... Yes, he yeah. likes being good at his job and he likes yeah. showing you the, how much, yeah. how and much what, better he, he, loves, better he way. loves his nickname. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, which we will get to at the end. He loves his nickname yeah. here. Yeah. He asks he asks him twice about it. Like he asked Mr. Lapadi twice about his name. Yeah, yeah. What have you heard about me starts with? Then once Mr. Lapadi gives him a little bit and they go through the whole shit, you know, the charades that he has him do and then he says, "The fact that he didn't name the nickname the first time upset him." So he he goes, he asks him again. Now, do you have you heard my nickname? You know, like he really wants him to he wanted to hear him say Jew Hunter. It, it was a Mr. White moment. Yeah. Say my name. People like that need other people to know they're the cleverest person in yes. the room and that that comes yes. out again um kind of towards the end as well but like he could even have let her go just that so somebody can tell the story of how clever he is and how clever he was in that moment of hunting everyone down do you want there's also maybe an element of like it's too easy like yeah. they were below the floorboards absolute like there was no chance of that it was it was like shooting fish in a barrel right yeah. like there was there was no way they were getting out of that so the fact that one managed to escape and like you say then there's there's something whether it's to tell the tale of the the, the jew hunter because there's because i mean that's also they're mirrored later on right because there's the whole the reason that aldo lets the prisoner go is to go back and spread fear among your nazi pals about alba the apache so is it a similar thing to that I, I, that, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. One of the reasons I came up with, and I really go into it on the Bible study, but I believe he let her go for maybe some of the hunt, but it's the, the the rat comparison he talks about and how he doesn't see the rat comparison of the Jews as a bad thing. He actually thinks it's a compliment because they're able to, the Jewish people at that time were able to give up all of what we would normally consider humanity in order for survival. And I think he thinks that here's this woman who, one, has evaded, her whole family evaded the Nazis for this long. She somehow survives a fish-in-the-barrel scenario and is able to crawl through her dead family and out and still is trying to survive. I think there's a bit of respect, I think he thinks of that. I think maybe he does let her go because maybe to see if he could catch her down the line or if she does get away. I think there's a little level of respect that you should not be alive. You should not have made it this far. But as I've just told Mr. Lepid, I don't mm-hmm. find the rat comparison as a I find it as a compliment and not a derogatory term for you, even though that's what it's meant for when you know in their propaganda. But he sees it as they're very cunning. They have survival skills that a lot of people don't possess. And part of me thinks he let her go for similar reasons you're saying. I think there was a level of respect of the fact that she was able to crawl through her dead family members to continue to try to survive. That he allowed her to survive at least for a couple of days. You know, who knows when he thought he would ever catch back up with her? But I, there may be a little of that. Before we jump to chapter two, do we think Londa keeps his word to Mr. Lapidite? 
and they leave his family alone? Or when, when the cameras jump over to the bastards, does he kill them all for treason? Oh, yeah, I, I, I think he would keep them alive because he needs people to know how clever he is. I agree. Yeah, he needs him to be there to go. And then the Jew hunter came over and all of this happened. And, you know, it's again, uh, to kind of what Graham said, it's the, it's the similar comparison to what the bastards are doing as well. Of he, He's going to leave him there. And he always seems to, as with all good evil people, he seems to think he's honorable as well, which is always an yes. interesting thing. And I think just that level of like, if he keeps them alive and gain, or at least he has a perceived level of respect. And I think that's also important to him, not only for his ego, but for him to be able to continue to do what he does. So yeah, I I kind of lean yeah lean on the um the idea that he would he would keep them alive. And also, look, this is Tarantino. If people are getting shot in the face, he's going to show it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, true. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The famously subtle Tarantino. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll jump us into chapter two. The actual title of this film, Inglorious Bastards. Now. Tarantino, he was asked where it came from. He says it's an artistic turn. Well, the name came from an Italian movie of the same name, similar plot, but not the exact same plot. So these are um, some American soldiers. I think they do on like a train robbery or something like that in Inglorious Bastards, the Italian film. So he took Inglorious Bastards. Now, it's only seen once. It's never said. They don't ever say Inglorious. They do say Bastards a couple of times. Now, here's why I truly believe it is spelled improperly. Inglorious is spelled I-N-G-L-O-U-R-I-O-U-S, and Bastards is with an E before the R-D instead of an A. I believe because it's also carved on a certain person's gun. Do you know, remember whose gun it's carved on the butt of? Uh, I mean, oh. I, I honestly have just clocked that Inglorious was spelled wrong. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> yes. It's always, it's always. Like my, I just focus on the E. Yes, no, I get you. Yes, it is on Mr. Eldo Rain's buttstock of his gun. He sets it down against the wall before he goes over and interrogates Werner. And that's the only time we get to see it. It's the only time the whole word is in the film. And I believe because Aldo Rain is from Tennessee, he was a bootlegger for Moonshine, his education was not very long or in-depth. I believe that he carved in Inglorious Bastards on his buttstock because he believes that is how it was spelled. He spelled it phonetically on his buttstock because he is a, yeah. didn't have a high education. And the reason it's spelled incorrectly is because Eldo Rain believes that is how Inglorious Bastards is spelled. And you can bet your ass no one on his team is going to tell him otherwise. No one's going to correct him after he's carved it into the buttstock. They're all going to start spelling Inglorious and Bastards the exact same way. So while Tarantino did not want to give up why he did it, why it was that way, I'm just going to go out and say that I believe that is why. Because of the man whose weapon it's on, the name that it's carved into, and who did the carving, and just knowing from the reputation of the South. I mean, we're talking like 19, the man was born in the 1920s, 1910s. The family's a bunch of moonshiners. So he's not going to school five days a week, seven hours a day. All right? Aldo didn't go to school. No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> so I believe in Glorious Bastards is spelled that way. Because that is how Elder Rain truly believes those two words are spelled. I can buy that. Your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, you yeah, convinced I'm convinced. Me. That, Thank that you. Is, <laughs> that, is, that is now what I'm going to be telling people. My answer to that question and is... That is a wrap on the Church of Tarantino my... podcast. Thank you very much. We're done. We're, all <laughs> We're converts. What can we say? The, my, um, my assumption for bas bastards with an E was always that it was set in France. And it seems like 
bastards. Huh? Right? I, I like that. I like that. Bastards. <laughs> you bastards. Uh, so that's where I always assume that. But yeah, I never really, I never really put uh, anything together with the inglorious. Other than maybe, you know, we we like our U's in in words over in the UK. So maybe Aldo's got some some British heritage. So he's, you know, maybe he spells color correctly. Who knows? Yeah. It's, it's all that aluminium. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And you, and and you park in your garage. <laughs> yeah. And then we, we shut the boots exactly. of our car. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is, might be controversial, but I prefer Brad Pitt's role as Eldo Rain to Cliff Booth. And I love Cliff Booth, so I don't want anyone to think I'm shitting on Cliff Booth. I just love Brad Pitt's Eldo Rain in this. I think as Cliff Booth, he's a little more you know, subdued and subtle, and, and he's still great as that, but I, and I know he won the award for that, but I just really do love him as Eldo Rain. Maybe I'm, you two may not share the same uh, sentiment, but I've watched them both more recently, and I just love everything about just the way he delivers this character. Am I wrong? Or what is what is your feelings towards the two characters that Mr. Pitt does in the Tarantinoverse? So this this kind of brings me on to something I was going to bring up later, but I'll bring it up now. Why not? Clint Booth I really liked, but once the film was done, I kind of had my fill. And I was, you know, he was in there for the right amount of time. Aldo Rain I wanted to see more of, which I think is always a good sign that a character is good. Yes. And I don't think... I think seeing more of him also would have been interesting. I don't think it would have been, like, too much. Which kind of brings me to the whole... Um, this was originally conceived as a miniseries, right? Yes, it was, yeah. He thought yeah. he didn't have to do it for that. Yeah, it took and him 10 it, years to finish this script. Yeah. He and could not you, get the ending, yeah. If you had the same cast, I think a miniseries would have been incredible. Because you could have properly dove Agreed. into Aldo... Mainly because you could have dove into Aldo Rainmore. And Hans Landa. We could have gotten yeah. a lot more from both of them. Yeah, so it, it, it's very, very interesting. But no, I think I agree with you. I think Aldo Rain is a very interesting character. And from, again, because it was written as a miniseries, there is so much background you can just find dotted around in interviews in places like the whole surviving a lynching thing and stuff like that. Like, he's a fascinating character. The scar that we never hear yeah. about, but that's, yeah. But yeah, Mr. We, Jones. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. And I think one of the major reasons for it is, and is probably actually largely on Tarantino's shoulders here, is that Aldo Rain's dialogue in this film is, I mean, second to none, right? It's from the original bastard speech right at the mm -hmm. beginning all the way through to Ariva Dirci. Like, it, it's it's just, he's been given such a good range of um, of, of dialogue to work with. And I think Brad Pitt just knocks it out of the park. Um, that's, so, that's, that's a phrase we're going yeah, to come back to, I mean, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but yeah, I think absolutely. And that's not shitting on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at all. Because Yes, movie, I agree 100%. But, um, I, I love his performance as Cliff Booth. I, I really do. But man, he's just so fucking spectacular as Aldo Rain. He's just so fucking spectacular as him. Uh, did you have you both had and I, I guess I probably had this with seeing him in like Fight yeah. Club and Seven for the first time, but like I had a perception of Brad Pitt for a very long time when I was younger of like, oh, he's just this goofy like heartthrob actor. He's in all these shitty films mm -hmm. like Meet Joe Black and stuff. I mean, then I saw him in like yeah, Fight Club and Snatch. Yes. Yep. Um love Snatch. Like this guy can Yes. Act. Like he is phenomenal. And it's not just that. He he also he can act and he picks interesting shit to do. Yes. Because you have some people yeah. who can act but end up just doing boring shit. And then you have people like Brad Pitt who are just like, okay, so what, yes. what do you want me to do? Okay, cool. Nazi guy. Great. Let's go for it. Now, if Mr. Eldo Rain 
waive the fact of you having to be Jewish and in your both cases American. Would you join the bastards? As in, could we? Would, or would you? We? Like if, like, like, like if you had, <laughs> okay. if you're World War Two, right. you're going out to scalp Nazis. Are you joining the bastards? Oh, sorry. Waved yeah, it. yeah, so, so you because you have to be I, I, Jewish I thought... American, unless of course <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, Hugo's yeah. the only one who got the pass in that. Because even yeah. Wiki <laughs> will we'll form went, up... went to move to America. Yeah, we'll form our British atheist <laughs> yeah. uh, bastards. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think after that rousing speech, like, I mean, yep, yeah, I'm in your debit. I owe you 100 Nazi scalps, and, and let's let's get to it. Yeah, I mean, like just 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 to. Uh... Because cause I'm I'm right on the edge of just forcing this into the conversation anyway. Uh, I would do it because I, <laughs> I I feel like I could be more threatening than the bad Jew was. Oh, we're gonna get into him in a second. Oh, yeah, I'm glad you. I, I want to yeah, get yeah, into yeah. him in a second. Yes, like just, thank you. Uh, we, okay. I just, I just we need, will get into him. I need, I need to put I need to put that stall out now. Yes. We need to talk I think about you, this. We see. I think we see eye to eye here. <laughs> and also one of the great disappointing oh, miscasts, yes. right? Because there's, cause there's yeah. been a few. People yeah. that this should is, have been this, in this is films that not even just Tarantino. This is the big disappointing casting miss out. Oh, without a doubt. Not according to my friend Ryan Rabalkin, he believes Daryl Hannah as our driver is disappointing. But you have to listen to that podcast where he talks about that like almost had nauseum. He hates her as much as you hate Tom Brady. I feel. I really <laughs> do feel like he does. Yeah. Now before we That's... jump into the Bear Jew. That sounded very weird and very sexual. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that could be what part of your Quite thing. I feel like that's either. Well, uh, right, there it is. We're jumping into the, yeah. into the very different Tarantino's <laughs> version of Midsummer. Um, what do we think that Aldo Rain does with these scalps after the war? Does he take them home? I mean, because he, he, they collect them. What frames them? Like, like you, know, you know, like after a wedding, some people have like dry presses of flowers. He's just or got, like he, here in America, a lot, of, uh, a lot of deer heads up on their wall. Yeah, just, just, just. Oh, I'm great. I'm going with like a big, uh, big fur coat, like um, <laughs> like Samuel in Hateful Eight, like the the massive fur that coat. That would be fantastic. That's a whole new Joseph and the Technical Dreamcoat version. I'd like to see. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly that. Or or it's kind of like it's it's the uh, Buffalo Bill, right, from Science of the yes. Lambs, but yeah, just yes. with, with scalps instead of the. His and hopefully he doesn't tuck himself skin. and say he'd fuck himself. That you know, I don't need to see that version of Elder Rain. I don't need that <laughs> version. Of <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In the private of his own. That's probably home. why. <laughs> another side. That's probably why Willem Dafoe wasn't in that part. That way too. Couldn't have tucked that tail. <laughs> well, he's, he's got very good quad strength, so I think he could. <laughs> it's like the Prestige, uh, the guy carrying the giant fishbowl. It's the same thing. We would be able to talk about a uh, movie about World War II without bringing up Hitler. I have to say, though, Martin Wutke, Wutke, I'm definitely saying the name wrong, and I apologize. He plays a very convincing Hitler, like an extremely convincing Hitler. You know, a lot of times you can either go very funny with it, you know, try to make it a very side joke. But, man, I, I know he's not exactly spot on, but he was excellent. As I'm, I mean, I don't know. Sounds, I'm kudosing a guy playing the worst human being in human history. <laughs> but he did represent, at least in a look and a feel, He, I felt like, it was a very good representation of who Hitler was, at least in the vein of this movie. I, we have, I have toyed with the idea of a top three Hitler's list, but I feel like out of, <laughs> that's that's the kind of thing that would get you cancelled without people listening to the episode. So it, yes. it's because he's definitely like the, obviously like I think the like the chef's the the, yeah, downfall, the chef's right? kiss Hitler is downfall. It, it's <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah. Um, Taika Waititi. Yeah, oh, yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, as adolescent as <laughs> adolescent Hitler. Imaginary friends Hitler. Um, Robert Carlyle has played Hitler before in like a BBC um, like 
pre-war Hitler thing, I think. But he's great because he had the right... It's the... As with everything with Inglorious Bastards, it is serious right up until the point it is silly and over the top. And it is the yes. perfect performance for that. Because he is... Yes. He's very threatening in Hitler and then he just becomes a toddler. And like he's standing yes. there... Yes, in, in the I think this would be the scene where he's standing in a cape. Yes, the nine, nine, yeah. nine, nine. Yes, we we'll first get him. Yeah, because yeah. Edry goes sound good, and then I'll tell you nine, nine. He's pissed off. <laughs> I, I think it also kind of captures it quite well, and similar to the Taika Waititi portrayal of him, actually, in the sense of like it's still showing how awful a human he was, but actually, there's the underlying kind of like insecurities, the fact that yeah, he might have been like this big bad guy that made a lot of people do a lot of terrible things but actually himself maybe was a bit of a weaker individual than is portrayed certainly by all the propaganda which is interesting because we're you know we're watching a film about a film that is all about nazi propaganda so it kind of comes full circle a little bit but yeah i think it's it it doesn't necessarily paint him as like this impossible to topple tyrant yes he is humanized a little bit if you can oh uh, no agree he's just not a cartoon character in the film history <laughs> yeah he, he is a fascinating figure to kind of read into like like because he he was stupid like apparently um because i have a history degree um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. fucking um, <laughs> d-day was able to get the footing because hitler told nobody to wake him up and no one wanted to be the person to wake him up and face the wrath of hitler he sounds like someone who may or may not have been in America for a while. I can't, I just, it's feeling similar. Yeah, it, it's he, hmm. it's the more you read into it, the more, like you said, you kind of you see the the human fault side yes. of it rather than him yes. just the fallibility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he was a monster, but that doesn't mean he is like this big fantasy figure. And it's it's always interesting seeing interpretations of uh, kind of him in films. Well, in this film, actually, Hans Land is a more threatening character mm. than Hitler is. Yeah, far more. I'm far more scared of of Hans Landa than I would be of Adolf Hitler. And I, again, I don't mean that any kind of like to disparage what Hitler truly did. But in this film, and the way that Hans Land is, is you almost again, this is gonna sound terrible. You're almost glad it was a person like Hitler who could, because of his fallibility, was able to be eventually defeated, as opposed to a person like Hans Landa who would have outsmarted, who would have been like a step ahead of everybody at least you have someone who at least at the end was able to be stopped as opposed to a person like Hans Landa we all may be speaking German right now if he was the kind of guy who was actually in charge of of the whole thing I mean ultimately like in 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 this rewriting of history he takes out Hitler (laughs) yes yes right like he is the bad guy who takes out the worst guy so yeah I think he um absolutely is the more terrifying prospect now the person painting Hitler's portrait do you know who he is do you know what actor did that uncredited? Uh, no. Oh, no. Mr. Sam Levine, who plays Hirschberg. He happened to be <laughs> on set that day, and he is the person painting Hitler's portrait <laughs> up on the scaffolding. <laughs> what a great stuff. So you pay attention to him. Hitler's losing his shit, and while he's doing it, Sam Levine turns around, is looking at camera. He's out of focus, and he does the old painter thing where like, he's taking the thumb, <laughs> yeah. and you can see him doing it. It's just When you're watching him, it's, it's fucking hilarious, because you know normally you're just watching Hitler lose his mind, but when you see, if you just look past him, you look at Sam Levine turned to us and doing the, the sizing with the thumb and then going back to painting. There's a bit of a comedic moment, especially when you know it's, it's him. Now, we're about to get to 
the bear do, but we have another person to get to first. But I forgot to mention this when we were talking about scalps. Obviously, we would all join, and obviously, we would have no, I have no problem scalping Nazis. I, I'll do it today, to be honest with you. I think you know what I'm talking about. I would still do it. Did you know that they had to go to scalping camp? They actually practiced for a full day how to scalp, and Tarantino told them whoever was the most practiced at scalping would get the close-ups in the film. So one of them was Mr. B.J. Novak, obviously, because he gets it at the end. That is something that I was like, just to be, I, where is the behind the scenes footage of this? I want to see this day where they're all like, you've got all these actors there. And today, gentlemen, we're going to teach you how to scalp a human being. Yeah. So what you need to do is big, big handful of hair. Basically, it's, I mean, it's the obvious alternative to church camp. Right? Oh. It's, that's, that's what you're doing over the summer. So either church camp or scalping camp. Scalping camp um, every day. Twice on Sunday, <laughs> sir. <laughs> one is one is something you're going to retain and is actually more useful in your life, and the other, mm. <laughs> so yes, I'm all in for the scalp. I do like the um, because obviously BJ Novak was in the office at the time that this was um being yeah. filmed, and the it's uh, Ryan has is said that he was like going to Thailand with friends from yes, high school, that was which is yeah. how how he got out of the uh, yeah. out of filming a few episodes of the office, yeah. Um, but they should have just said he was at scalping right? camp just to yes. kind of like bring, yeah. bring the universe yeah, he's together. the only he's the only best selling children's <laughs> author i've ever seen scalper man <laughs> I mean, we don't have footage, though, back in the day of Dr. Seuss. We just don't know what Dr. Seuss was doing on weekends. Yeah, true. So in fairness to Dr. Seuss, I don't want to just take him out of the equation. He could be a, a very experienced scalper. We just never know. Yeah, Roald Dahl was massively Dr. Into it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Seuss was like a piece of shit, right? Like, I didn't realize Oh, this they all were. Him. He was awful. Yeah. Just I mean, dreadful. I, this isn't going to give them any kind of like get out of jail free card, but anyone born before, you know, like the 70s, yeah, kind of kind of big pieces of shit. You know, I just, I mean, but that, but again, that's just where they came from. But it's like, yeah, kind of big. Like, so when people yeah. are shocked to hear things like the cancel culture we have, like, it's like, oh my God, like, what a what about a John Wayne did you think he was like a LGBT flag waving Black Lives Matter type of guy? Where in John Wayne did you ever feel like that's the you know like so, yeah. oh my God he's not an American he's not like that you mean you mean the, the, you mean the guy who played Genghis Khan? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yes. The Texan who played Genghis Khan. Yes, that's another. You know, I feel bad because I may be saying something that you've already done. But have you done an episode of the worst people to do uh, play a person that they're not we, a part of? Not yet. It is, it, it is, it is on the short list, but we have not done that All yet. All right. All right. Because Mr. Sean Connery is in there as well. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> but one person who does play a German and who is absolutely fucking fantastic and who people can't see, I'm wearing his pin. Is Hugo fucking Stiglitz. I love Hugo Stiglitz. Again, he would be another person I wish, like you said, if they had the actual miniseries, we could have got an episode, or at least half an episode, of just Stiglitz Hugo could have been a Stiglitz. Yeah. Oh, I would I would like to hear a, a book. <laughs> if not if he's doing yeah. novels, let's do a Stiglitz book. I want the whole 13 deaths. The 13 deaths of Stiglitz. I want to see Hugo Stiglitz in action. Now, did you gentlemen know that the man who played him, Till Schweiger, had to be convinced to play him? Because he has an absolute 100% hate of the Nazis. He's a German-born person who hates the Nazis. If only the people in America could figure that out. Sorry, I digress. He hates the fucking Nazis, and he did not want to wear an SS uniform. Tarantino had to promise him that in every scene that he is wearing an SS uniform, except one, but he was getting prepared to kill somebody, he was brutally murdering 
a Nazi soldier. And the only time he's not is when he's sharpening his knife. That's the only time they show him on screen that he's not involved somehow in killing Nazis. Did you gentlemen know that? And am I just I I didn't know something? That's very interesting. Welcome to the church. I I read it today in doing my uh, research, but yeah, but uh, you can kind of understand it. Absolutely. Because there is, you know, in in that, um, I think in Germany in particular, like I, I think most people, don't really want, apart from Prince Harry, don't really want to be uh, <laughs> voluntarily wearing a, a Nazi uniform. You mean outside but, of America? Um, well, they just, it's slightly different, right? It's white <laughs> right. and... no, Well, neo-Nazis are <laughs> become very big again here. Yeah, yeah this, this is very true. I think the interesting thing, and it doesn't come across so much in this one, but certainly in, if we talk about in um, Jojo Rabbit, is it's really interesting that we don't often see the plight of regular german people as part of world war ii yes. right the germans are always the bad guys the west or the you know, yep. british the americans are always the good guys and everyone in germany is demonized and i think that's and that's one of the reasons jj rabbit is one of my yes. favorite films because it actually I agree. I'm with you on that it too. shows the plight of the regular people of germany and so given that and all of that history you can understand why someone that's come from that background yeah. and has kind of always been demonized as a result absolutely doesn't want to do that but you know i mean fair play uh, i think Quentin bagged the, uh, he, he got the right negotiation yes. down there, didn't he? <laughs> yes. Who, I mean, I'd put on an SS uniform and do the same exact thing. Like, uh, oh, all right, yeah. <laughs> I wore two swastikas. If I'm double stabbing, it's just butchering people. That have, absolutely. I'll do it with a chainsaw. Well, I just wonder if there's other, other situations where you could do that. Like, you know what, guys? I'm never wearing a mascot <laughs> costume. It's like, all right, yeah, right, fine. But whenever you're wearing a mascot costume, we will show you brutally murdering someone in a mascot costume. <laughs> Or having furry sex, <laughs> so you've got both the both yeah. worlds covered. Either or, either or. <laughs> I saw, I feel a movie coming, a furry mass murdering sex offender. I, this feels like a, a good film coming up here, starring Mel Gibson. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is a good point. I think that's what you wanted the beaver to be. Right? <laughs> oh <laughs> well, God, I always forget see, that was a film. That, yeah, that may be the only beaver he gets these days. So, but we're gonna talk about the bear Jew. Now, as I said, my guest, Mr. Ryan Rebelkin, who was on Jackie Brown and Kill Bill Volume 2, he was not a fan of Daryl Hannah's acting in Kill Bill. I differ on that. I enjoyed her. I thought I didn't think she was bad. I, but I again, really liked her. Everyone's Kill opinion Bill. is their own. I have no problem with that. Now, Mr. Eli Roth, who I feel after this moment, when we first re- when we really get introduced to him, he finally has something to say, and we get to see the Bear Jew in action. After this moment, he gets a little bit better as the film goes on. Towards the end, I like him better with Omar. The whole I think he gets better. But in this scene, fuck a duck, as he says. God, I he is terrible as the bear Jew. He, he I feel like he comes out, and don't get me wrong. I mean, his action. I'm like, oh, he's. I'm like, fantastic. He is beating the dog shit out of this Nazi, and I'm like, I'm all for it. Like, I'll rewind it, put it on slow mo to watch a Nazi get their head beat in. But when he starts to fucking talk, and I feel like he's like racing through the dialogue, like he's got to say it as fast as possible. Almost like Tarantino said, as soon as his body is cold, you need to say this line in under two seconds. I feel like he's going, I could beat you. I'll get in a minute, a second and a half. His whole thing is awful. It's it's terrible. It, it, the whole Teddy Ball game. And, uh, first of all, I hate the fucking the Red Sox. I fucking hate the Red Sox. He's got an <laughs> awful Boston accent that he doesn't use the rest of the film. The rest of the film, he does not have the Boston accent. Because he's Italian, right? Because the rest of the time, he, well, yeah. But even when he's talking to him, like you got 50, you got 30 seconds to make it to the guy. Can you do it? He doesn't. There's no Boston accent. 
He's only a Boston accent when he's selling it to us that he's from Boston because he tells us about Ted Williams and he's not and, and we have to know the street. Like, oh, we get it. All you did say was Ted Williams. That's all you had to fucking say. We don't need to know the street outside the fucking stadium. No one fucking cares. That really pulled me out. Like that little moment. Like, thankfully. Hershberg shooting somebody in the back brings me back. So Aldo goes, God damn it, Hershberg. Bring one a lot. Like, we're able to salvage the rest of that moment it's, because yeah. Hershberg shoots a Jew or shoots a German soldier in the back without thinking. And we get to get back to Aldo. But, oh, batter up. Two hits. I hit you, hit the ground. Like, oh my God. Like, I was like, who wrote this? My child, like my three year old son when he was younger. Like, who wrote that dialogue at that moment? Like, I almost feel like. That's not Tarantino. I don't know. Maybe because Eli Roth goes on to direct the German propaganda film that gets into the film. And, you know, he did it on his own. And, you know, probably didn't get paid for it. So maybe Tarantino's like, oh, fucking do me a favor. And he just lets it slide. But I, I had a feeling you guys had a, a similar opinion to this. But I'll let you both uh, discuss. Yeah, he's not. He's also not. Given that his nickname is the Bear Jew, he doesn't seem imposing enough <laughs> to be that person in fairness he did put on 35 pounds of muscle yeah but like for that, that is putting on 35 pounds of muscle <laughs> like it's he's just wasn't the right guy for that specific role which of us wants to say who was originally in mind for it uh i i'll, I'll let you have this one because i stole your uh robert That's fair. so apparently this, so. in like the in the great <laughs> missed casting opportunity they wanted adam sandler and I think Adam yes. Sandler turned it down to do, like, Grown Ups 2 or something. Power to him. Whatever. Adam yes. Sandler in this would have been game-changing. Because he is a... I think he would have been good at he's it. He's a yeah. hugely underrated actor. Like, Uncut oh, Gems absolutely. recently. Um, Rain Over Me, which I still think would have been before this. Yep. So even at this time, he had done some serious Punch stuff. Punch Drug Love. Yeah. But he also looks like... Adam Sandler's got a bit of the... He's not as big as Vince Vaughn, but I yeah, think no, if he no, packed yeah. on a bit of muscle, he could look very yep. threatening if he wanted to. And I just think he would have been perfect. And we got Eli fucking Roth. <laughs> I know. And it's just... I know. It, it's, yeah. I know. Like you said, that whole, that whole scene just entirely take. It's why I don't rank the film higher uh, of his other... Because in Pulp Fiction, you don't have a scene like that. Reservoir Dogs, you don't have a scene like that. And no, it's just like, it's no. so un-Tarantino-y. It's just like, ah, oh, yeah. this feels really weird. Yeah. But, hey. Who knows, maybe on set it felt good, but the end yeah. product is... And like I said, uh, to be fair to him, he does get better at, as the... Like, when we do get some more of him, he does get a little bit better. He doesn't have a whole lot, but him at the end with Omar, I think he's really... He, he's really good at the end, but this moment where it's like his, it's his character introduction. But we get, built, as I say in this podcast, they get a lot of great well, character right? introduction. Like it's a, it's a character introduction that they've built up. And, and then it does not rough. pay off with him. No. Yeah. Because he talks. If he doesn't talk and we just let him beat the shit out of somebody and then he just goes, you, and he just points the bat and says nothing else. He doesn't do the whole lands down street and all that bullshit. If he just beats the guy, stares at him, turns around and just goes, you. Much better scene. Yeah. We don't get a whole lot of that bullshit. No, for sure. Hershberg yeah. shoots him. We get to laugh because of the sudden death of Hershberg shooting the guy he shouldn't have shot. Better. Better scene. I will go back and re-edit to this, and I'll, I'll talk to Tarantino about it. We're just going to yeah. cut it. We're going to cut that bullshit out. It's it's the the shooting. Uh, the German soldier runs away, and then just how quickly the guy dobs in everyone else. Like the, uh, yes. Just immediate, Saves the whole Immediately moment. touching mm-hmm. the map. It's like, yes, there we go. We're back in. We're back into a Tarantino movie yeah. rather yeah. than an Eli Roth yeah. movie. Do, do we think that given, like... Adam Sandler didn't take it. I think like Eli Roth was like a last minute casting thing. Like you said, kind of good friends was was involved with the film anyway. Do you think if Eli Roth wasn't doing it, we would have had another um, 
Tarantino directing himself. Oh god, no. Because uh... <laughs> I don't think Tarantino has the uh, the want the to only... do thirty put thirty five pounds of muscle. On. That's the only way that could have so been worse, right? Yeah, no. In fairness, yes, that is correct. Yeah. yeah, I love the man, but he cannot act for shit. I'm glad he went in the re- direction of directing and not acting. Yeah, a question that I haven't researched, so I don't actually have an answer to it. But given we all wanted Adam Sandler, but he was busy filming for a film with his friends in yeah. Hawaii, and given that Eli Roth should probably not have done it, is there anyone who would have really, like, for want of a better phrase, knocked it out of the park? <laughs> Well, to be fair, you said you brought up Vince Vaughn. Like, I, I, I wouldn't put it past Ooh. Vince Vaughn being a being a good shot. Vince Vaughn, yes, Vince Vaughn would have been good. Yeah, Vin, Vince Vaughn's great. I mean, like Cell Block '99, uh, Vince Vaughn. Oh, good lord! Yeah. Oh, I would have loved to see <laughs> Cell Block '99, oh. Vince Vaughn as the Bear Jew. That's scary, Bear Jew. So this yeah. is yeah. <laughs> This is... That, that is actually, you only send in him. Like, you don't need to send everybody else. It's him. <laughs> he fucking just beats people to death with his hands. Yeah, well done, man. We stumbled on the right answer immediately. I think the, the correct, the correct yes. answer is... Because you said Selbach 99. Yeah. And I covered that on our podcast. That was our second one. I did Watch This or Die. That was our second recommendation after Death Proof was Selbach 99. It is so fucking good. So Such good. Such a good film. Oh. But all of that kind of, like, uh, say... Bone Tomahawk yep. and um, Dragged Across Concrete. Yeah, what's his name? Um, yeah, he's Concrete, one of my right? favorite yeah. um, directors. He's he's a guy who reminds me a bit of like a Tarantino. He does. He's not afraid to take chances, and he really does great. All three of his uh, his movies have been, in my opinion, home runs. They've been absolute fantastic movies. So we went to see at a independent cinema in London a film of his that he did a film that prominently features Nazis. Oh, okay. So he he wrote. <laughs> so not directed, but he wrote. Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich, <laughs> which is no, yeah, was it? so fucked up. But we, uh, uh, <laughs> Cinema in London, were showing it, and it's just like, just text Gray of the name of the film. It's like, we're going to see this, right? It's like, yep, yes, we are. <laughs> it's what you think. Yes, exactly. Well, now I'm going to have to check it out. I have to check it out now. Before we leave this Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich version of Chapter 2, <laughs> do you gents know what Aldo is sniffing throughout this movie? I seem to, it was like snuff. It's like, yeah. is it snuff? Yes, yeah, it's ground it tobacco. I'm not a tobacco connoisseur. I didn't know you could sniff up tobacco. And I can't imagine that go down easy. That feels like that's like worse than Smarties. I mean, I'm probably a little bit older than you, but in my generation, people would ground up Smarties, which are the little candies you get at Halloween, and, and then they snuff it like there was cocaine. I'm being a child of the 80s. That's what you did in the yeah. 80s. You Don Johnson did, and, and that would hurt. Like your eyes would water, and you'd almost feel like your nose was bleeding. I can't imagine ground tobacco is a real pleasurable snuffing experience. Well, I think it's supposed to give you a it's a quick hit right like i think it's supposed oh, to I'm sure. knock you out of it but it's definitely a big well not here but like it was a big i think it is like a it is an upper class 1920s thing over here <laughs> i think right Graham? i mean that's where i kind of know it from when i was in the upper class yeah of the i don't <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, back yeah. back in the good old days before the depression. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. It's is certainly not. I think it is around still. Like you can still get hold of it if you want to, but <clears throat> it's not something that you would like. You're not going to see someone, um, someone doing it on the uh, on a park bench in London. <laughs> well, we well now listen seen, here, sir. I've seen Stranger Things. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right, so chapter three, German night in Paris. This is the only chapter in the film for two things. One, there's no violence and no one dies, and not a single word of English is spoken 
in chapter 3. So there you go, gentlemen. You now may take that home with you and share that at your local pubs and take it as your own, you sons of bitches. Wee <laughs> <laughs> wee. Oui, oui. <laughs> now, we, I think there's a conversation we're about to have, but I just want to let everyone know that, that the weird thing is, is that the... When we start the movie, it's 1941. After the English best part, when this comes up, we get 1944. So it's three years. But the weird thing is, is when we get to see Zoller meet Shoshana for the first time, and she's out changing the marquee, it says four years since the massacre of her family. So that technically should make it 1945. Look, I'm not going to split hairs. That is just an irregularity that's in the film. Is We went from 41 to 44. In math, that's three years. If you're saying it's four years... It's still not four. It's still not four years. Times have moved past the time. So if her family's killed in 1941, four years from that date is 1945. Unless there's a new math that I don't know about that they're using over in France and Germany. Is there something that I don't know about? I we don't know anymore because we left. Yeah, the we're not sure. Oh, that's true. So that's they, right. They, you won't know anymore. It's, yeah. This is one of the reasons because yeah. they just they can't <laughs> and they can't add up. I I want this probably and maybe I'm giving Tarantino far too much credit here, but. Um, I can only think maybe it could be explained away by like a war's going on for so long it feels like longer kind fair, of thing. Fair. Perhaps. Um, but you know, it probably is just a, a bit of a miscalculation, I, I would well, imagine. Well, you're used to calculating to the end of the war to 1945. So there is maybe, that. Maybe too, it's yeah. just that. We never get to 1945 <laughs> yeah. in this film. So. <laughs> so this is a very interesting segment of the film. We get to see Shoshana, how, how she's recovered as best she could in the three or four years since the death of her family. And we meet Private Zoller, who we will learn is, although, you know, if we were if we were to go, who's the deadliest person who's killed the most people in Tarantino verse? It's Private Zoller. He has over 300 mm. confirmed kills. He has killed, as far as we know, people who know and have told us their number, no one has killed more people than Private Zoller. He's killed, in three days, he killed 300 plus people. That is pretty impressive for a guy who looks like he can barely brush his teeth in the morning without getting a cramp. So, <laughs> just, I'm not being mean to Daniel Brule, but at least in this case, you go, huh. What he becomes in, was it Winter Soldier or Civil War? Civil War. Which one's, which, in Civil War, he's, Civil a, he's War, a different character. Yeah. In this one, he's not as, not as menacing. He's, I do feel sorry for Daniel Brule. Because in this, you mean Zola or as the actual oh, actor? The, the, so the, the actor, because I think he he's an incredible actor and he was incredible in this film. Agreed. But nobody remembers him because Hans Lander is in the film. Like same same to uh, same to an extent, even like Brad Pitt and like everyone else. Yeah, it's like there are some incredible. Uh, maybe even Melanie Laurent is yeah. really powerful in this in this in yeah. this mid section. So but she both really both of good. them, like their entire half of the film is incredible, but all people remember, and I, I don't want to say rightly so, but like understandably so, is Hans Lander. But Daniel Brühl is an incre- he's incredible in this, and like you said, and um, Melanie Laurent, Dan Kruger is incredible as well. But yes, yes. everyone forgets Michael Fassbender was in it because Hans yeah. Lander I mean, is Christoph such a big Waltz. draw. Yeah. He he pulled out his giant fucking dick pipe and said, beat me. And yeah. <laughs> that was it. Here in America, obviously Christoph Waltz was an unknown. Uh you obviously being from over there in Europe, you get you get a little bit more flair. He was, of, um, out, when out. we consider here foreign films, uh, we don't get a chance to see like not many German films are going to be played over here unless you're in an art house or they're you know be- even before streaming service like Netflix. So Christoph Waltz was an unknown until he walked on screen at the beginning of that this film, and so from that moment on, now everyone knows him. But especially in America, for a non-American actor to walk on screen and blow everyone away, 
This movie was sold on the fact that Brad Pitt was in it. This movie was sold on it's about the bastards. And the guy who steals the show is this Austrian actor who plays the most unreal villain in the history of all villains. <laughs> you know, I can understand why Daniel Brühl is forgotten about because, sadly, he doesn't come on until this section of the film, and we've already had Hans Landa, and we've already had the glorious Brad Pitt. So it's like, who's this fucking guy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I feel bad for him. What is great about his, what I think what you're talking about is, this is a very odd romance. This movie, this part of the film really is what most people would conceive as a romantic comedy would be starting in another film like this. But because of who the girl he is after and who he has no idea, he has no idea that she is a, she's a Jew, and he has no idea the lengths with which she had to get to Paris and is surviving and has no idea how much hatred she has for him and his uniform. And Graham, I think this lends a little a credence to what you were saying as well, which is, not every person in a German uniform was a Nazi and hated Jews. You had two choices. You joined the cause or you joined the bodies. Which did you want to choose? Are you and your family supporters of Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich? Or are you and your family enemies of the state? Which do you want to be a part of? Do you want to move forward in life or would you like to die immediately right now? So when given that choice... You're putting on the fucking uniform. I don't care how progressive you think you are. When it's a choice of life or death, especially if you have a family, you're choosing to put on the uniform. Maybe you maybe you defect later or maybe you become Hugo Stieglitz, but you're putting it on because you want to keep your family alive. And I think this is the part of the film which really plays more with how much do we hate Frederick Zoller? He's not an asshole. He survived. There was 300 soldiers surrounding him. He did what anyone, because he's not wearing the uniform that we all would be wearing, like us, myself being in the United States military, and you guys would have been in the British Army, we're not wearing the same uniform. And so obviously in our eyes, he's the enemy. In his eyes, we're the fucking enemy. He's, what, he's supposed to put his gun down and just give up and die? No, he's going to defend himself. So Frederick Zoller is this interesting character because while on one hand, history tells us we have to hate him because he is a Nazi supporter. He's a soldier of the German army in the 1940s. We also learn that this is just the guy who did what he had to do to survive. He was good at what he does. And he falls in love with this girl as a French girl because he's a lover of film, like it to his heart. He's no different than us because we're film lovers. He was just put in a position where he had to fight for his country. Lo and behold, a really good fucking good <laughs> shot. He's an excellent shot. And he survived. And they want to tell his story. And who of us would not want our story told? You know, so... I was going to say, I think it's one of these really interesting reflections on when you look at an individual rather than a... Uh, rather than the collective right because like like you say everyone knows that nazis are the bad guys nazis are awful people but then you look at the individual the personality comes out you see them as a person and it's kind of hard to start to you know i'm not saying that he was a good guy by any stretch of the imagination but it's uh, it's hard to kind of pin the same things if you would if you are to ask someone to describe a nazi and you ask someone to describe private zola I don't think you'd necessarily use the same words Agreed. because he doesn't necessarily embody those things, right? So it's an interesting one because I think this happens in a lot of scenarios. And there's a Marilyn Manson lyric, and I know Marilyn Manson is a piece of shit, but there's a Marilyn Manson lyric, uh, I forget which song it is, but it's uh, the death of one is a tragedy, the death of millions is just a statistic. And it's kind of similar here, right? In that when you look at it in the, the individual, you see you, there's so much more flavor around it. There's so much more context and you have a completely different view of something. Whereas when you're looking at it as the collective, this massive army, all of the kind of 
cause that they stand for those two things are just completely incongruent and it's it's interesting and i love films and and studies where that you're seeing i guess the counter view maybe or the, the hidden view that you don't necessarily get and so yeah it's it's a it's a really interesting take as to a member of the german army who perhaps you you don't completely detest which is a and also puts you as a viewer in a bit of an awkward kind of it makes you feel a bit, a bit uncomfortable as well, I, I, mean, I, I i'm clearly in the minority here uh, i think he's a prick but it's, oh, but, it's, it's all right. but it's but it's <laughs> but not because he's in the german army you're a nazi he's it's like he's he's hitting on this girl who should absolutely no interest in him you know there's there's a proper like toxic masculinity yes. vibe to him mm-hmm. he needs to shut the fuck up She's not interested in him. Leave it alone. So all of his character stuff, like if you were listening to it and not watching it, you would, like you said, you wouldn't think he yes. was. An, it's nothing to do with the fact he's a Nazi. He's just got True. this. He's got this massive ego problem because he thinks he's a celebrity and he doesn't understand why anyone wouldn't be interested in him because he's a big celebrity fancy guy. You know. Which... But is that also maybe the reason he likes her is because she doesn't know who he is. So it's kind of refreshing that he's that if she does like him, it'll be on the merits of him and not. Of that, I, and how much of this can we attribute to two things? One, her backstory, because obviously she can't stand this fucking guy, only because I know it's a bit of a stretch, but it's judging him based on his uniform. So no yeah. different than if he were to judge Marcel, her actual boyfriend, which she has no idea she has one because he's black. Judge him just based on the fact that he's black and know nothing else but what he thinks he knows. So how much is she judging him based on the uniform without ever getting to know him? Which I think peaks its head up in chapter five and how much of it is also because <laughs> i wrote this down in the three to four years that she has no longer been in the countryside she has really acclimated herself to the stereotypical french person attitude just <laughs> the way she is and the way she, you know she's she's at a bar she's always smoking. like i feel like you know obviously tarantino leaned into some of these tropes of what we think of french people over here in america but she definitely embodies them and she's a real bitch to him even when he's just saying hi to her like the first time he meets her he's just thanking her for having a german night and does you know didn't think anything of it and she She's kind of like, like I had a choice. She's being such a bitch to him in the early stages. Like when he just, or the first time he meets her, yeah, maybe he's obviously fancy because of her looks, but he's not using the usual tactics menus as far as being hitting on somebody. He's just, he's thanking her for her theater, playing these movies because he's a film buff and thinks, well, maybe there's a kindred spirit because she owns a theater. And she's basically like, fuck you. Like she wants to just turn around and said, hey, fuck you. That's throwing like a letter at him. That's like, you know, she really gives him the cold shoulder when he's just trying to be polite in conversation the first meeting. Now, I'm not saying he's a good person. I'm just being devil's advocate here. Yeah. I, I still think just he's a prick. <laughs> As, uh, so you're not, you're, you're not sold. Fair, fair, no, very fair, I mean, fair. Like, to, to me, again, not to go into uh, modern events so much, but there's, <laughs> there's a lot of tangents with certain NFL stars, right? Like... <laughs> Who may or may not have three-minute commercials before some oh, of your favorite movies. I was, was, was talking about him. I'm talking about the guy who will hopefully okay, okay. end up in prison. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, like, because he, he, he may or may not. Like, t- to me, he comes... Cleveland a, Rocks. Yeah, like, he comes across to me as a guy who, again, because he, he has landed himself as, like, the big deal, the big deal guy. I was about to say Billy Big Bollocks, but yeah. I don't know if that is specifically a British <laughs> term. But he's... um. No, uh, we call him Johnny Big Dick over yeah, here. Yeah. Johnny Big Balls. Yeah, yeah same yeah. thing, same thing. Yep. This is our this is our tra- Billy's yeah. cousin. Yeah. This is our transatlantic yeah, cultural exchange. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, he, he comes across as the guy like he yeah, he he he's a big deal. He's he is trying to be nice, which is commendable, like be nice, but then when you see someone's not interested, you stop. Consent, kids. Agreed. It's a, it's a real thing. Yes, but also this is nineteen forties. 
That's right. I just want to put it in perspective the time frame. And, so, and he's a Nazi. Time, yes, <laughs> yes. He's <laughs> occupying her country, and he's not forcing himself on her. So in the time frame we're talking about, he's a sweet fucking guy. He's a swell guy. You bring home to mom. <laughs> he's not using his position to rape her, which is, you know, I mean, in 1945 or 44 Paris, France, is, he's, a, he's a guy you, you definitely bring home for dinner to, with the folks. How much of your pants did you shit when... Hellstrom and the SS pull up a couple minutes later after this scene starts. The first time you see the film. Obviously, many viewings after. We know how everything goes in the film. But when the SS first show up, and we have no reason or context why, what was your first thought? You think, oh, fuck, the jigs up. Like, somehow Private Zoller saw through her or someone knows. Like, did you, did you think she was in trouble at that moment? Or did you just think, ah, no big deal? I mean, the SS showing up is always a big deal, right? <laughs> I think it's, uh, don't, I don't think you can square that unless as, it's, as Unless it's Jojo Rabbit, then it's hilarious. <laughs> well, yeah, this is very true. But yeah, I think there was definitely like, a, something's gone wrong here. The jig is up. But then also it's... Uh, it's Tarantino, so it's never going to be that simple. So I kind of think there was like something's gone wrong here, and you know, technically something had gone wrong, but also it had gone, it had played into a hand ultimately. But like, also, do do you want that to to be the outcome of, of a load of Nazis get, occupying your theater? Probably not. She obviously, you know, use <laughs> yeah. it to her advantage. Yeah, I think I think I always thought it's not going to be as simple as they catch her and that's the end of the film kind of thing. Yeah. There was always going to be more to it. But um, yeah, it's definitely, he uses it well to be like, shit. Did you like the little power move Hellstrom pulls when he slaps her ass to get in the car? What a fucking cocksucker move that was. But I laugh every time because he's just, he's, you know, get your ass in the car. She doesn't understand German. He just, right as she's getting, I don't know if Melly knew it was coming. I don't know if it was scripted, but he gives her that slap on the ass as she gets in the car. And I always, I always saw it again the other day. I was like, wow, what a dick power power move that was back you know back when women here in america were still doing it but back when women were really treated like just objects he's like get the bam just slapped her right on the ass didn't even didn't think twice about it didn't even phase him that he did he's like yeah boom right in the ass but then the other the other power move is then it all turns out that they just asked her to invite her <laughs> I know everyone else is like, "Hey, did you get my?" She's yeah, like, "Invitation." Yeah. <laughs> and I love when they, when she looks at him, he's got that shit eating green. Like, "Fuck you, I'm using my power. I don't care." Yeah. Tarantino has filmed two sex scenes in his movies, and both of them have been hilarious and ridiculous sex scenes. The Melanie and Lewis sex scene from Jackie Brown, which is you know, what's it say, four minutes later, and then this horrible sex scene of Goebbels banging Sophie Fatale from Kill Bill, and then I do love. Of the look that Melanie, that Shoshana gives her when he's saying, "Yeah, this is his interpreter," yeah. and she just gives him, she just gives that, mm-hmm, "I know what you do, bitch," <laughs> and that awful look she has to give. It. I was such a great little small moment of just close-ups of reactions. Uh, just a nice little. Uh, it's such a beautiful one that probably gets passed over by so many people. But rewatching it again, just her look at her being like, mm-hmm, you're a whore. And then <laughs> being like, yep, I'm a Nazi's <laughs> whore. I just fucking love that she has like, eat her own shit without ever having to, without ever words ever being said to one another. Do you know, the only, the only downside about that scene is that, and obviously Tarantino kind of takes some liberties in kind of, I guess, mocking yeah. um, a lot of the people in, in Nazi high command and stuff. Surely it's the other way around and Goebbels is getting pegged. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> surely that is, that is the be- that's the better cut. <laughs> That's, oh, uh, you know, I'm surprised we have not been brought in as consults in any films lately. I don't. <laughs> I think we've got some pretty good ideas. I'm just saying, some pretty good ideas out here. Yeah, quick, Quentin, Quentin. Now let, let's be real. Yeah, there's just not enough pegging in this movie, is there? Oh. Here are the scenes we <laughs> could insert pegging into. Come on. 
I mean, you had no problem doing it to the Ving Rames. Like, come on, let, let's <laughs> here we go. Let's keep this. Let's keep this whole gimp thing going. Hans Landa showing back up. Now, I know you two have some beliefs, but I have a very strong belief on some things. I know it's a big fan lore that people think he knows it's her. I disagree, but we'll get into it in a second. What I love about this scene is, and Tarantino's done this a lot of times, where he doesn't actually put the camera on the people talking. Ving Rains being one of them, when we look at nothing but Bruce Willis for like four to five minutes as Ving Rains' character, Marcel Wallace, is talking to him. And this is introduction. We don't even see him. We just hear his voice, and we just get all reaction shot. What an amazing performance by Melanie Laurent, first off, as Hans Land is behind her, and they're talking, and everything's going on up above, and she is just sitting there having to try to swallow emotions and keep from not you know, breaking character and giving herself up, but yet also being this close to the man who murdered her family. Like, what an amazing scene. I thought about saying that may be the most tense moment of this entire film, and I think what's about to come up is tense and what happened before, but it's that moment in the film, and probably because of the setup from our first chapter. But, oh, my God, like, I, yesterday even, I was like, whew, I was feeling nervous for it. And I know how the fucking movie ends. I know she gets her revenge. But just uh, un- unbelievable, one, acting, but also the command of a director to say, you know what, we're doing nothing but a reaction shot in this moment. We're not going to see anyone else or what's going on above. The, re- the really interesting thing with that is the um at the end of the at the end of the scene when land has gone away and she just lets the emotion out yes is is yes because it's you've encapsulated everything that she's kind of managed to hide away for like a good it's it's a lengthy kind of piece of time right and then it just comes out and i think the acting there is phenomenal yeah so i, I was actually going to go to the beginning of like <laughs> the beginning of the hans lander appearing scene so for me what i really liked about it was so the, again the first time you watch it you have a feeling hans lander's going to turn up right because that's how a film works like this is where he's going to make his big reappearance but then the scene seems to end and then there is like a really nondescript feeder line where he basically asks her like um what german films have you shown and then suddenly Hans Lander standing behind her. And it still kind of hits you out yes. because you're like, oh, well, maybe there'll, there'll be another scene after this where Hans Lander appears. But it makes you think it is kind of done. Like everything is summing up and then suddenly he's there and then keeps her there. And it is just, yeah, it is so... It's one of the tensest scenes outside of like explicitly a horror movie or something like that because you have no, no idea... I sometimes feel it's more intense than a horror film because at least in a horror film, yeah. I know I'm in a horror film. I know what I'm getting myself into. In this movie, and this is his second time on screen. We saw him in the beginning. He gets the full 20 minutes of the open. We don't see him for a while, and now he's back. And we've been lulled because we've gotten to see all the rain. And I think he, we know he's there somewhere and he's going to be back, but we just don't know when. And then all of a sudden, he, like you said, he just like shows up. And just like he does in the moment, he does I don't, film, like, I don't think fuck, you see him there. walk up, right? You just cut. That and he's just standing behind her. No, yeah. no, like all of a sudden he's behind her. Yeah. And that's why I think he's the greatest villain in all of cinematic history because no one I can think of when they're on screen, especially the first three times he's on screen, am I absolutely tensed, terrified, and like fearful for the people on screen with him. Like I just don't know what he's going to do. No one brings that kind of emotion. I don't know care what movie it is. And I'm, like, I think I told you before we record, I'm a huge Star Wars fan and I love Vader. But Vader's always been that like cool villain. Like I'm like, oh, I want to be like this villain. I'm joining the I'm joining the Empire. Hans Landa is the one person I've always been like. He is just so smart. I think it's the cerebral assassin ability of him. I do not believe he knows it's her. And I'm going to explain exactly why. He's never seen her face. What he saw of her 
was asshole and elbows of her running away at a distance. Dark, mud, blood-covered hair. Has no idea what she looks like. Zero idea. What he does do is something that I get into in the first Bible study. Is when he's sitting there talking with her, his interrogation style is to lead you in, say a few things, and gauge your reaction. He is a lie detector. And I don't want to give too much away because I, hopefully, gentlemen after this will listen to the, the Bible study. And you'll understand what I'm talking about because I really get into it in the first one about that opening scene and what he does to Lapadit's daughters and how just by the reactions he has with them and the things he does there and the, some of the things he says, he knows immediately the answer he's looking for. So he's doing the same thing here. He is playing mind games with this woman. He has no reason to believe it's Shoshana. Three years have passed. There's no, maybe in the back of his mind he wonders where she is, but the bastards have become a real problem for him and, and then the Germans. And I think as we get into this film further, he's been searching for the bastards for quite some time. I think he's chased down a lot of the Jews. I don't even know if he's hunting Jews anymore because this is now 1944. We're past you know the, the occupation. Maybe he still is, but I think he's got a lot of this bastard stuff going on for him. So I don't think he knows it's her at all. I think the fact that us as an audience, we feel like, like she does, does he know? Does he know it's her? So I think that's where a lot of us get that intrepidation and we're fearing for her safety and that he may know. But I don't think he knows. And that's why when he pauses, so I have a question and he gives her that look. This is the second time he's done it. He's done it to Charlotte. He's waiting to see if there's a chink or crack in her armor, if she's going to give up something. I don't think he thinks she's Jewish. I, he, I think he's wondering... Is she, because she's French, he's not dumb. You're going to put this in a French person's theater? They don't like us. They don't want us. We're occupying them. I think he's trying to gauge if she has other intentions towards them. Because at this point, he does not know about Operation Kino, which we're coming up on. He doesn't know about any of the stuff that's coming up. So at this point, he's not like, all right, we're going to blow up the high command. Hitler's not even on the way yet. He's not even going to be at the theater. So at this point, he's gauging as the security officer, is this woman a person who would do harm to the Nazi party if they're brought there. And he's basically using his mind fuck ability to do so because he would not have left her if he thought it was her. Now, feel free to not agree and that's probably fine and that's why I'm going to leave it to you. But that is my interpretation of it, especially after watching the first scene as intense as I did. I, I'm going to go with if we're talking about if, if we go back to why did he let Shazana live in scene one? because of the threat of the chase, because he's the Jew hunter and he wants to kind of, you know, he wants to maintain that. I feel like that the stuff off screen is happening, right? He's got everyone's names from Lapidite. There's nothing to say that he's not done his research. There's nothing to say that he's not seen his her original papers. We obviously see in the, the scene at the cinema that she's got her new papers as yeah. Emmanuel Mimieux. I wonder, I, I just think there's too much that is so delicately done to reference back to the dairy farm that it that he doesn't know that it's her. Well, I think some of it is, I've also read this too, is what he did with that scene is if she was Jewish, the stuff that he offers her, that's why he says wait for the cream because the cream is usually made with pig lard and it's something that the Jewish faith who are very devout to it would not eat. And milk, I mean, she was a dairy farmer, so the milk is just, you know, an extra point. But some of it is definitely subterfuge of seeing if she also may be Jewish like you're thinking. I do not believe he thinks she's Shoshana. I do not believe a Miss Mimu is even related. I think that's the cover. I think she is a French sympathizer who sympathized with the Jews and did not like the Germans and really felt for this young woman, however however they come about. Which, again, like you said, if we had that miniseries, I think we get a lot more backstory of what happened between for her between the three years of her escaping and becoming in— um, running this theater. I think there's a lot that's hidden there. And I think that 
Again, this is just my opinion. I don't think he has any clue who she might be. I do think he's looking to see, is she an enemy of the state? Could she also be Jewish and, and, and hiding it? And if she's not, could she also be a person who, if we move the theater here, that she would want to bring harm and do something at the theater that would endanger the Nazis' lives? That's just, again, my stance. I think, look, whichever way you look at it, I think we can all agree is that strudel looks bloody delicious. Yes. It's, again, I also put in my notes, not only is it bloody delicious, it's also terrifying. <laughs> like, it's fucking terrifying. How does he make a glass of milk and a strudel so terrifying? Like, that strudel looks so delicious. Like, when he puts the cream down, like, yeah, you definitely need to wait for that cream. Yeah. I, even was I, so I, have, I have the um, special edition Blu-ray that came with uh, a load of art cards, which included the recipe card for the strudel. I haven't oh. made it yet, but um, definitely needs it because, oh. <laughs> mm. oh, you know, I, I think I put in my posts on my uh, Instagram, I put, you know, the top five. I always have these top five lists every week, and one of them was top five tastiest looking food, and that was my number one. My number one tastiest looking food was the strudel from Inglourious Bastards. It's just... Again, Tarantino's great at doing that, too, of using food for plot points as well. Like, you know, you get a milkshake and you get a burger and the next thing you know, someone's getting shot. You know what I mean? Like all these great moments of food that we usually use as like commune and, and friendship. And then he's able to make them sometimes sinister, like a glass of milk should just be a glass of milk. But it's not a nice piece of strudel should just be a nice piece of strudel. And it's not, you know, you get fucking terrified from two moments of food in this film. It's just a nod that, you know, you can take something so innocuous and yet tie it into something that just absolutely gives you nothing but dread and almost like a PTSD type of a mentality. You think she's ever going to be able to drink a glass of milk or have a piece of strudel again in her life after this? Well, we all know she doesn't, but if she were to live in the events that don't do happen, didn't happen, do you think she'd ever have another piece of strudel in her no, fucking not life? A chance. I, but also as, as, as someone who is lactose intolerant, <laughs> I can say that a, a, a glass of milk <laughs> does fill me with dread. Oh, you're <laughs> fucked. Hans Landa is killing you. You're done. It's over with. If you don't drink that glass of milk and eat that piece of strudel, you're fucked. It's over with. Even though you do have <laughs> pale skin and red hair, and you look nothing like you'd be of Jewish descent, he's like, I don't trust him. I don't trust the ginger. Kill him. We're done with him. And now we're going to jump to chapter four, the British section oh, yeah, of the up. film. Operation Kino with the great <laughs> British actor Mike Myers. Okay. <laughs> Did you gentlemen know? Maybe you do because you're from Europe and you're a little more worldly than us Americans. If it's not American, it's not anything. Did you know Kino is the German word for movie theater? No. I did. Uh, I'll have you know I, I, I actually have a German GCSE. So, uh, oh, you God. know. <laughs> yep. Oh, fan-fucking-tastic. I love it. Graham's like, no, nah, I don't know. And he's like, no, excuse me. I, if you could see Graham. Um, you can't see Graham's face, but if anyone could see our video feed right now, Ian pulled out a giant fucking Bavarian pipe and uh, held it up for all to see. And uh, basically, he's got just the call biggest me, dick just call me the at the moment. Now... <laughs> Just call him Willie Defoe. <laughs> Big Willie Defoe. Now, obviously, Mike Myers is in this. The great Rod Taylor plays Churchill, and this is his last film. How did you guys like Mike Myers as playing a high command soldier? And also, 
the great Michael Fassbender as Archie Hickox. And again, this is another film where Fassbender was not well known here in America. This movie launches him and Christoph Waltz into the American conscious as far as, you know, actors. And three years later, he'd be in the phenomenal movie 12 Years a Slave as an unbelievably reprehensible villain. But what would you guys think of, of the performances? One is a Canadian playing a British officer and Mr. Fassbender making his appearance. So if we, if we do Fassbender, do you, know, do you know who was originally offered the role? I do, but I won't steal your thunder. I don't know. Simon Pegg. Uh, yeah. What film was he doing? He had the choice between working with Spielberg or Tarantino, which, to be fair, is a very tough decision to make. But to be fair, to be fair, he could have done the voiceover stuff. But I mean, uh, unlike the Adam Sandler one, I think Fassbender's the better choice because Fassbender's fluent in German. I don't think Simon Pegg could do. Yes, because he was born in Germany. He's actually born in Germany. It's actually yeah. his first language is actual. Yeah, so German. I think he could do those scenes with a lot more gusto than Simon Pegg would have been able to. But I, I, I think Fassbender is incredible. Like I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of the borderline caricature British accent, okay. but everything else was fucking outstanding. <laughs> Fassbender is brilliant, and I don't know if it will translate. But and I don't know if you've seen it, Scott. But um, film called Eden Lake that he did. It's a low budget British horror movie. It is fucked. It is phenomenal. Really? So okay. uh, it's the first thing I ever saw him in. Um, it might be a little, I don't know if culturally, like it's it's very like on the British working class kind of stuff. So I don't know how many references and things might pull through, but um, definitely, definitely uh, seek it out because it's a very, very okay. good film. Um, but yeah, I, I thought Fassbender was great. Um, and Mike Myers, um, it's just nice to see Mike Myers do stuff. He doesn't do yeah. a lot anymore, right? It's and great. He's obviously, great. He, I mean, he made all of his money from like after Shrek, he never needs to do anything no. again, right? But um no. Yeah, he's just he's 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 brilliant. It's nice to see him crop up. And in in I was I was just checking just to see just to you know sometimes you're like oh this guy's not been in anything forever but then it just turns out it's just not been anything that you've watched forever. But no, he he's really <laughs> yeah. not been in much over the last sort of like yeah since sort of Shrek really. But um yeah, he put out a show just recently on Netflix and then he he did that cameo Bohemian uh, Rhapsody. in uh, yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody, genius cameo. And then Apparently, apparently Austin Powers 4 is coming, so uh, make of that what you will. Ooh, okay, all right. <laughs> but, uh... That's Tarantino's last film. <laughs> Imagine a Tarantino Austin Powers. Oh, I'm glorious. still annoyed we never got Tarantino Star Trek. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I know, me too. I know, I know. Now, this moment before we get into, and that's the other Bible study I'm doing, is the massacre in the La Louisiane Tavern. I love the moment where we finally have Hickox meeting the bastards. We're having the conversation. I love Brad Pitt's just will not let go of how dumb it is to fight in a basement. It is never not funny to me. You don't got to be Stonewall <laughs> Jackson. No, you don't want to fight in a fucking basement. I just love the whole just back and forth. He just, he won't let that go. He's like a girlfriend who just nags you. He's not letting go of the fact that they have to fight in a basement. There's irony in this scene. And I'll see if you gentlemen agree with me. Now, Hickok's interaction is he's trying to sell how good British spies are because he's like, you know, talking about, you know, Von Hammersmark, which he just found out a day or two ago, is working for them. Is like, you know, the, she'll be there. Don't worry. British spies were good. And then he goes over to Stiglitz. Are you going to be calm? Like, he's talking about how, you know, we're very professional here in Britain. We are going, we have got this down. Do not worry. When we get in there, we're all going to be cool, calm, collected. No matter what happens, we'll be able to roll the punches. Be cool, honey, and everything's going to cool. go great. 
<laughs> just don't overreact. Exactly, exactly. And the first motherfucker who almost gives everything away, the minute we get into the tavern, he realizes there are Germans there. This dude, all three of them actually, their facial expression when they see German soldiers sitting there literally gives up the jig in a second that they're not even supposed to be there. I think Eric clocks them the minute they walk in the door, that Nazi sympathizing piece of shit. And I just, I just thought it was great because, you know, the whole time we're like, God damn, this British soldier, he is, you know what, yeah, you know, hell though, Rain's being a dick. and, and But at the end of the day, you're like, Fassbender is the worst spy in the history of Britain. He is terrible. I think Mr. Bean would have been a better spy because he gives everything away throughout the entire scene. Not just the three fingers, but the entire scene He's easily chafed. He's ready to, he almost gives up like three or four times when Hellstrom sits down. Like they're just, if they just played the game, everything would have been fine. Like he is just so impatient and wants to get right. Basically, how about this? He is not good at foreplay. He is a meat and potatoes, get to the game guy. He doesn't want any of the salad, anything before. Because that good way of talking about sex without going to sex. Right up until He is the kind of guy, ladies, who is just, yeah, right? (laughs) He is the guy who is just like, let's go. It's time to go. We don't have time for this other stuff. Don't get me wrong. I love Fastman. I think he's just phenomenal in it. And again, it's great acting on him. But it is a nice twist on the fact that when we first meet him, we think one thing, and then we get into the scene. If you're really paying attention, you're like, fucking hell, man. You're giving this away every five fucking seconds. Just be fucking cool. What is your take on uh, on Archie Hickox in this moment? I think he's too much. I think he's too upstanding British gentleman to be anything like a posing as a German. I think that's the issue, right? And you <laughs> yep. see it in the... <laughs> you look oh, so that, that, that sounded like... Really weird. I think he's. I think he's too <laughs> British to be convincingly German. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. Like he's. A, <laughs> yeah. I feel like a Captain Obvious lot of things. Uh, no, absolutely, <laughs> but even, but not so much like him being able to portray it, but him being able to like com, like convince himself to do it, kind of thing. Like he's too much for like king and country kind of thing that he can't properly have the mask up there without it slipping. That's kind of as I view it. I don't think he's necessarily bad at his uh, at his day job. It's just um he's he's just so well i think you can again this is kind of one of the scenes i kind of talked about earlier of like it's fun to watch back and see exactly because i think as soon as he puts his fingers up he clocks that he's fucked up if he has the whole fucking table has the whole not even just house from the whole fucking table knows as soon as it's up you can see in his face of just like oh shit i've just i've gone and ruined it for everyone but it's it's an incredibly Again, and again, in another, like with a lot of the scenes we've talked about, again, it's basically a play. Yes, yes. You could watch this whole, it's a 20-something, 24-minute scene that you could watch just that moment in the the tavern. It's an unbelievable way of writing dialogue and moving a story about and dropping in little hints. Because like you said, with the three fingers, which I'll admit, obviously in America, I, I did not know someone else ordered like three. And I cover this on the Bible side, but I'll bring it up here too, just to illustrate this point. They open the scene. And they order five schnapps. And we see the German soldier order five schnapps, and he puts up his hand for five. Obviously, he doesn't clock anything. That's what everyone do. When they finally sit down, and she says to Eric, you give them whatever they would like. It's on me. And he comes over and says, I'll take your order. They order three whiskeys, mm-hmm. but they order verbally. No hands are used. This is all great setup that it's just, again, feels like, ah, just throw away moment. But it's not. It's set intentionally. We see a German person order, but we don't see how they would order in anything else. So we just see five. So when it happens, we don't know why this is a giveaway until obviously she explains it later. And then when they order the first time, they order three whiskeys, but they just 
say Zwei Whiskey. And there's no hand signals because they're all sitting down around the same time. So they don't do a hand signal to Eric. So we don't see it look wrong or see it look any different way. So then when we finally get it to again for the third time they're ordering, he does the three. And again, like I said, I don't know if you gentlemen, obviously you're from the EU, so you probably get out a little bit more than us here in America. We would, no one would have known that three is done that way in Germany. Did you gentlemen know that that is how you ordered in no, Germany? But also, with the, with the last time they order, the German major, so the Gestapo guy, orders five. Yep. And then uh, Hammersmark says she's not going to have one. Someone else turns it down. So then Fassbender orders three. So it's just like, oh, you were so close. You were so close to just yep. universally five is five. Yes, yes. But I don't think, I, I, I think, uh, speaking for myself, Graham, if you correct me, I think everybody learned this from this film. Like, I had no oh, idea. Without, no without. idea at all. And I've been to Germany before. Like, it's just not something you pick up. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, you don't even notice it in this scene. You notice it once we get to the vet when she explains it. Because when he does that, three whiskeys, and everyone else's faces goes, and the first time you watch, you go, you order whiskey. And then all of a sudden, he's like, I'm done with these monkey shines. And you're like, what, what, what the fuck gave him away? I mean, obviously, besides the, trying to give away the entire scene. And then it's not until she explains it, then you go, oh, shit. It's that oh, shit moment. Obviously, the German audience was like, look at this motherfucker. And the rest of us like, I mean, besides the fact that his, maybe he doesn't buy the accent anymore. You know, so would you notice different dialects? Because obviously, much like here in America, we have a big stretch of land. A lot of people have different accents. I can probably tell you where they're from. I could probably also tell if someone was trying to fake a very notable accent. You being from Britain, I also know that you have different. Not, I'm not even just. I'm just talking about just in England itself. Not even talking about Ireland, Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland. I'm talking about just in your own. I know you call it the UK, but in England, you have different dialects just depending on where you live. Would you be able to pick up and tell somebody where they're from and know if someone was pulling a bullshit dialect or trying to fake one? Yeah, definitely, you can tell where people are from without a doubt, um, and which is impressive given you know the size of our country. We're smaller than Florida, right? But we have all of those different accents piled into into one country. Um, but um, the faking it, I don't know. It that's that's maybe a little harder. It to, depends to on I think like you can you can I could it's it's a stupid thing to say, but I could tell if someone's faking an accent badly, like. You know, just, yeah, just to go slightly, yeah, yeah. yeah, to go slightly outside. Good eye, mate. Uh, <laughs> was that was that but yeah. Brummy? Uh, Robert Downey Jr. in Doolittle <laughs> is not a Welsh accent. He's uh, I, I mean, I thought that spot, was spot, yeah, spot on. on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not not not, not not offensive to my heritage <laughs> at all. But it, <laughs> it's, from, it's from Welsh yeah. Rhode Island. I but, think that's where they're. Yeah, the, like, the, what, yeah, you can pick out a bad accent, but I don't think in a situation like that I would be able to go. Well, you're from here. Like the guy, what is it? Like you're Mister or Lieutenant yeah. Munich, Lieutenant Frankfurt. I could, I could not do that. I don't even apparently sound either, like I'm yeah. from where I am. So. How should I be able fair, to do it? Fair. It's, I, I, fair. I, so I'm curious. What what do our accents sound like to you? Because I'll be honest, Scott, I was in, massively intimidated coming on your podcast because you have the perfect oh. podcast voice. Like you, you are. <laughs> what? You, your, your voice is like. Okay. Um, uh, oh, I appreciate like, that. Um, now we'll have to come over there and marry Chris you. Essentially, right. like American radio de- disc jockey. Like that's all I could hear when I could hear you speaking. So, in <laughs> fairness, my father actually was in radio. He was a disc jockey back in the days when radios weren't owned by conglomerates. When there was like you know your local mom and dad ones. Like so, I get that from that side of the family. So, in fairness, I have recorded with so many of you Brits that not that not that like I don't notice you have an accent, but I've 
getting used to it. Is that does yeah. that make sense? Like like the way you speak. I've recorded with Steve Smith, who's from there. I've recorded with Ian. I'm not recording. I recorded a bunch of people who have the British accent, and it just doesn't. Now it's not a strong. It's it's not Brad Pitt snatch. <laughs> so I'm not. You know, it's not. It's not like what he he has to take a shite. What? So again, like I, I it's a probably. I'm probably feel like I'm just bullshitting it. But Americans love accents, especially women. Women love accents. I'll be honest, men. We love it too. Like if we hear because it's something we don't know. You know, like it's it's different. It's ooh, it's exotic. It's something new. Like a woman speaking with the Australian accent, that does it to me all the time. You know, British women, but like same thing for here. I think people like accents, but for me, I'm becoming a bit tone deaf because of the other things I spend after I get done talking to you. I spend hours with you that you don't know about, <laughs> listening to you, you know, going through editing, and then you know, then then I'll listen back like three or four times just to make sure that it's good. You know, like I didn't over edit, that I haven't missed anything, that you guys sound good. So I've listened to you for like days on end. So I guess I get used to yeah. now hearing your voice. So like it doesn't, it's not as strange as like the first time like I you know. Recorded with Steve Smith. He was my first guest. He was English, and I was like, "Okay, all right, here we go." How, I hope this sounds good to both people. You know, I don't know how it sounds over there because I have a I have a decent sized English audience, and I I hope I hope they don't go. What the fuck is that wanker? <laughs> Which I really love that you guys use wanker and cunt a lot. Like, ah. Uh, it does make me feel because uh, I just love that it doesn't have that connotation that it does here in America. First of all, most Americans don't know what wanker is. And second, cunt is a lot. Ooh, that's a heavy word here in America. It is. It's a heavy word. You guys just throw it around like, fuck. It is, you know, like, ah, fuck I hope you, you bleep it, it out. Yeah. I really want you to bleep it, bleep it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I no. no. You don't know much about me, but I like to find. I like to see where the bars that makes people a little bit uncomfortable, and then I like to Olympic size pole vault over that because it gives me joy to know that I'm causing people discomfort. So, anyways, we'll jump back <laughs> into now that we've all decided. And thank you very much, Grant, for that. Thank you very much for that voice comment. I will now drop it down another octave. And now, what late late night Tarantino? Did you notice that a great mark of what Tarantino was able to do in this film is he took a what should be a sympathetic character, and we hate him instantly. I'm talking about Willem. <laughs> yeah. Willem's one of those guys who's he's a private. He oh, again, he's there because this is what he has to do. He's fighting for his country. We don't know his politics, but he's there doing what he has to do, as anyone in Germany would have to do, or they're already dead. He's there celebrating the birth of his son. His becoming a new father, and because. Bridget von Hammersmark is about to give us some major info, and he interrupts. We're like, fuck this motherfucker. I hope him, his son, his whole bloodline dies right now. Like, we have no reason to hate Willem and cheer him being shot at the end, but because he interrupts a scene and he's wearing a uniform we don't like. Like, there's nothing about Willem that gives us, should give us any cause to think that he's anything but just this nice guy who's very excited that he's finally become a father. And here he is doing it in war in another country. We'll never see his child now after the scene, and yet it's as soon as he interrupts Von Hammer's mark, we're all like, fuck this guy. Am I wrong in that interpretation? Or were you guys in love with him the minute he interrupted her telling us about Adolf Hitler coming to the, the premiere? No, I, 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 I agree. It was uh, like, fair, fair enough, you know, good for him being a dad and stuff. But then, yeah, it was just, it was a proper like, guy, just fuck off, fuck <laughs> off. We're in the middle of something here. <laughs> you, we've, you've also all been in that bar where that drunk guy just won't leave you alone. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> the, uh, yes, fair. Fair, just for Graham yes. and I, the Wonderwall guy. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. We, we're at a we're at a sports bar uh, before a gig, and this guy just kept asking the band to play Wonderwall, and it stopped being funny immediately. And he kept going, and he couldn't figure out why people were getting annoyed. Yeah. Ah, uh, drunk, drunk people. You were like, I hope you, your family, <laughs> yeah. and your new son are all murdered right now. But I think it's just great because here's this this poor little schlub, and we've you're like, fuck this, ah. And then when she shoots, you're like, God damn right, you deserve to fucking die, you little prick. Now 
I cover a lot of that better in the other Bible study because I don't want to do too much in that, and we're almost done with it. We're going to jump to the vet scene very quickly because this leads up to what ends up being one of the funniest moments in, in movies when we get to get to the actual premiere. But did you know that this scene is longer when it was actually filmed? And they had to cut the movie down from three hours to, like, I think, two hours and 40 minutes, two hours and 35 minutes. And they did that within two days. They cut out a scene. If you watch in the background, there are two dogs that are dead. They have bullet holes in them. This scene starts, and you can see the door has been broken into over where they eventually move the vet. They basically intimidate this vet to help them because, obviously, he's a vet in France, and he doesn't want to incur the wrath of the Nazis for helping these people trying to kill him. So in this scene, they actually shoot two of his dogs in order to get him to help take the bullet out of her leg. And when you see it, it's in the background. You can see it. There's one on the, I think, the second shelf. He's the one all the way left. And then the one in the middle on the bottom shelf. And again, they're not real dogs. So I don't want anyone to start getting up in arms. It's not real fucking dogs. They didn't really shoot dogs. All right, people? So I don't know why I even have to say that. But there's going to be someone who's like, shut fucking dogs? No, I didn't shoot dogs. And Wilhelm's alive. Um, They didn't shoot dogs. But there are two dead, obviously, fake dogs that are in there. Had you ever seen that? Or did you even know that? I, I knew a lot of stuff had been cut out. Like, I know there were a load of actors and characters and things like that that are no longer in the film, but I didn't realise that scene was part of a longer one. No, same. And actually, it's interesting because you don't actually question... Like, I know there's lots of, like, crime movies where they kind of go to the vet because it's, you know, not getting into yep. the, the doctors and all the records and stuff. But, yeah, I guess you kind of don't question it, but also... It is a bit odd that they know this random French vet that is <laughs> going to sort them out as sort of Dan Kruger out. So, uh, yeah, make, makes sense. Wait, you, do, you don't know a random French vet? I thought, every, <laughs> I thought everyone knew a random French vet. Just... <laughs> <laughs> it's just a thing you do? Well, you, you don't anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used, I used to know tons of them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. It's over with. My, right. uh, my address book's empty. Yeah, main reason I voted Remain was to keep my uh, <laughs> French vet. <laughs> <laughs> The interrogation that Pitt does to Devon Hammersmark is pretty brutal. The little finger in the bullet hole. It's, it definitely makes your, your body tense up when he's doing that to her. But it's the end where they're going to talk about who speaks the most German. And it's a beautiful nod. Again, it's a little setup as Omar's like, I don't speak any. I'm sorry, Italian. I don't speak any Italian. And he goes, yeah, third best. You know what? Why don't you shut your mouth? How would you practice right now? I love that whole little moment. Because that ends. Well, it doesn't end because it brings in... It brings us back to the fucking Darth Vader of this film, Hans Landa, and he's missing his Cinderella. He has <laughs> found his Cinderella, and she's missing a shoe, and she happened to make the failed mistake of kissing a napkin, and now he knows about the plot. At what point do we think he decided to keep the plot under wraps and go the way he does as we jump into Chapter 5, Revenge of Giant Face, which... I'll get into as well. It's the least favorite of titles he's done for a chapter in all of his movies. Given like what we've said about Lander previously, I reckon instantaneously. Like I think yeah. his his mind Same. works a million miles an hour, right? And he's yeah. So once he realizes that von Hammer's mark is a spy and that there are two bastards dead that she's in with the bastards, then... and what he can get out of it, I think he's made this decision. But I I also think from kind of from what I was saying earlier, like I, I think at this stage he's kind of because like again, like he's not doing his job anymore, right? Like he's he I think I think yeah. he's bored. I don't think he I don't want to say job fulfillment when it comes to the Nazis, but you get what I mean, right? Like he's not yeah. he's no longer living his best hunting life. Um so I think if anything he was looking for an opportunity like this to, you know, be able to uh 
have fun again, right? Like be involved in like a plot and stuff like that. So I think as soon yeah. as he recognised there was something there, and for me it's also shown in his hugely over the top reaction because he knows immediately they're not Italian. Like his reaction to that is like, yep, no, he's done this because now they also know that he knows. <laughs> <laughs> that they're not Italian. <laughs> oh, now I won't get into how bad Revenge of Giant Face is. I, there could have been so many different titles. I get that her face is uh, whatever. You know what? The man gets a he gets a mulligan every now and again. Not my favorite title for a chapter. But Mr. Graham, did you know? Since you talked about you wishing he was going to do Star Trek, this actual plot of this part of this chapter is based or loosely based on and was inspired by a episode of Star Trek where a similar thing happens in that show. I did not no. I actually have cr- cr- watched criminally little Star Trek, and the reason I wanted a Tarantino Star Trek was an excuse to watch Star Trek because it would make yeah. you want to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> Now, what we do get to know is, like you're saying, when Londa does talk with Mrs. Von Hammersmark, Londa's a fucking ladies' man. Londa has uh, laid more pipe in France, apparently, <laughs> than the French, whatever you have over there, lays pipe over in France since it's been around for forever. When she says, you know, I've known some of your conquests, I was like, oh, shit, Londa, the game is afoot. Londa can either find you or find some, some lady friends. At the drop of a hat, Mr. Londa truly does. The pipe does match the pants, apparently. Mr. Londa is, uh, he just pulls out that pipe and the ladies fall in line for him, apparently. I don't know if you caught that little line that she says about him, um, but I was like, oh shit, Hans Londa is not just a, a creepy Nazi hunter. He also has a softer side with the ladies. They do call him the German Christopher Walker. <laughs> <laughs> Do you say the gentle German? Chris- <laughs> oh, I, think so. I thought you said the gentle Christopher Walken, and then I was like, oh, man, I did not know Christopher Walken is rough. And now him and Willem Dafoe are running through my mind of like, oh, what a great buddy William cop Dafoe, movie that Why did be. I say Christopher Walken? I absolutely meant Willem Dafoe. <laughs> I've, 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 I've ruined, right. I've absolutely butchered that joke. Yeah, I, you, you No, should. it's good because I haven't planted the seed of we doing a Christopher Walken <laughs> episode. So as long as it germinates, I'm, I'm happy with That's it. That's it. That is it. You, you have, yep, you, there it you, is. You, you planted the seed and it's, it's taken root. <laughs> <laughs> but like when you were saying like the part where he loses it is when she tells him she broke her foot climbing a mountain yesterday and he just fucking walks off. Now, I don't know. I don't know how Christoph Waltz got to that level, but he is laughing heartily, like as if he's heard the most ridiculous, funny thing ever. And I got to feel like he did that in one take. You know, how's he able to psych himself up in his mind that that's as funny as he makes it, as it makes it be? And that's when they should know that they're fucked. Yeah. When he laughs like that, they should all be like, fuck. Let's just, blow, you know, just fuck it. Let's just blow the fucking whole fuses right here on our ankles now. Because this is as good as it's going to get. We're going to just blow up this whole lobby. And that and we'll just have to go from there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's... But like I kind of said, it, it's uh, a clever person needs other people to know they're clever. So he's just gone over the top. But also, like, fair, even if um, he had just arrested them on site and taken them out of the theatre and shot them in an alley, uh, the theatre still would have been set on fire and exploded and killed everyone. <laughs> true, like, true. They no, did not know. Neither yes. half of the film affects the other one yes. in the slightest. Apart from having this, exactly. th- apart from having this cinema night planned, that's it. I don't think any of yes. them meet. <laughs> It's no, it's, the bastards don't meet Melanie, yeah. don't meet Shoshana. Shoshana doesn't even know what the bastards yeah. In fact, she's dead before the theater even blows up. So, in her mind, as she goes unfairly to her, the fire just helps trap them and keeps them in the audience for the whole thing to explode. But really, the fire does not really kill anybody, it doesn't affect the thing except make it really hot in there, like you're having in Europe right now a very <laughs> heat, big heat wave. 
<laughs> the whole Gorlami and which is what I said, the little the little nugget he dropped in, in chapter four is Omar is the one with the best Italian accent and pronunciation. That's what's like bravo. Did you know that Mr. Waltz did actually not know Italian and actually learned these lines and delivers them with brilliance for yeah, the scene? I, I read this. I actually thought he knew all four languages. I did not know that he did not know it's, Italian. It's quite to me as well. Like I, I, I am the most typically British person in the sense that I have no. My my foreign languages are dreadful. Like we studied a bit of French at school and. You know, I could maybe get by in a very basic conversation of, you know, asking someone where the the uh, library is because I think that's what they taught us, right? Um, but other than that, like I, my the, the whole concept of foreign languages, and I'd love to speak. I would love to speak other languages, but it is just it just doesn't stick for me for whatever reason. Um, so I am in awe of people like Christopher uh, Waltz, who is Christopher Waltz, sorry, who is just like I mean, it's like a duck to water with it. Like you say, he's learned this for the film, and it is it's as if he's been speaking it his whole life. Gorlami, <laughs> that'll never not be funny. Gorlami, <laughs> Dominic de Coco, okay, Dominic de Coco, bravo, <laughs> so, so so great. Now. I am a person who used to work in a movie theater, so I really like the whole splicing the film and stuff together. But there's a little nice nod. Anyone who is a fan of, uh, say, The Departed and Scorsese's films, he has done this a couple times. But in the old gangster films, they used to put a red X somewhere on screen when someone was going to die. And if you watch The Departed, when Martin um, Sheen's character comes out the window, every single window has an X on it. In this film, when they're showing, Marcel is showing her all how, you know, they're ready for the show. You know, real one's on this projector, real two's here, real three's ready to go, and number four is in the can. Now, real four is where the lighting of the fire is going to happen. The can has a red X on it, which is a little homage to the old films of the gangster eras that that is the death that is whoever when this reel goes on death will happen and as it turns out when that reel comes on that's when the shooting starts the fire starts the explosion happens so it is a little homage but also a nod that when the real four comes on everyone is going to die and they mark it with the red x which usually connotates with the red you know the x's over eyes being someone's dead so there's a little information for you I don't know if you knew that, but you may take that home with you and use it in your next pub story. You can say, did you know? You could be very, and bring out your pipe, Ian. Just break <laughs> out the pipe and say, did you know? How do we feel about Shoshana shooting Borzola? It's a stalker story that comes to a violent end, as almost all stalker stories do. Someone usually gets shot. Were you glad that she shot him? And were you, oh, actually, I apologize. I jumped over the most important death of the entire film and the most guttural, visceral death. And that is when Mr. Londa chokes the fuck out of Von Hammersmark. When Tarantino chokes yeah, the fuck thank out you. of yes. Von Hammersmark. In one take and he really choked her. He told her, I'm going to choke you to the point of you almost passing out. She put in his hands, literally, the fact that he was going to know when about she was about to pass out and when to let go. So that reaction shot of her being choked is 100% authentic, and she is 100% being choked nearly to death. That is a lot of faith to put in to a man who, let's be honest, if he wasn't a film director, has a chance that he could have been a serial killer. I mean, he's in prison, right? If, if he didn't find cinema, he's in prison. <laughs> yes. He's, prison or yes. politics. Definitely. 
<laughs> Aren't they the same at this point now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, oh. it's a hell of a it's a hell of a um way to do things, but I mean yeah, you do you QT. Yeah, that was that was a lot. And then that's the moment we think, okay, the jig's up. And then we get the great change, the change of Londa for every moment, even after, you know, when he, when we finally grab Brad Pitt and he's telling them all to fuck themselves and, <laughs> and we think, okay, they're done. We get that scene where he sits there with him and Yudovich and it's a different Hans Landa. It's a completely different person that we've seen throughout this entire film. He, it's different. Like he's not interrogating them anymore. He doesn't need any information from them. He's now basically doing the villain monologue where he's now divulging his master plan, which he just came up with probably hours earlier. And it's in this moment, like you said, in the beginning, he's Mr. White, say my name. And now he's like, uh, I mean, wh- what do you want from me? What, why? I don't know. I mean, Jew Hunter. <sighs> I mean, can you control the names that people put on you? Why the change? Why do we think he goes from being, hey, say my name, bitch, to, I mean, gentlemen, what's in a name? I mean, it's not my fault that they call me this. I mean, do, do you like being called little man? Like, why did he do the... 180 out of the blue it's it's tactics right like he's he needs to get something from them and so he's not going down the hard line of i'm this terrible person look all of the wonderful things i've done for the german army it's like uh you know i'm not so bad i'm trying to help you you scratch my back i'll scratch yours kind of thing um it's all it's all i think everything with hans lander comes down to the psychology of the situation and getting one up on the other person even if they're not kind of that aware that he's you're doing it um so i mean that's my explanation is that he he sees it as a way to get what he wants Fair. ian no nothing yeah no i mean it's <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to think of something different to add but i think that's basically <laughs> it it's it's either that or it is uh it, again like he's after four slash three years depending how we're doing the uh the maths um <laughs> i think he's just done with it. i think he's he's either just bored or he's so clever he sees where the war is going, so wants to wants to get ahead of everything. This is get out because he does say he does not want to wind up in front of a Jewish tribunal. Yeah. He knows, he knows where he's headed. He knows that the war is almost over, even though Hitler can't figure that out. Yeah, so I, I I think he's clever clever enough to know where things are going and realizes again. And I think very early figured out right. I need to, I need to find a plot that's happening. <laughs> And latch myself onto the one that looks like it's going to win, which is also why he planted the planted the bomb, right? Like he's uh, yes, underneath Goebbels. He's, he, is, yep. he is basically a step ahead of absolutely everyone this entire time. Yes, yes, he he truly is. And then, as I was alluding to earlier, how do we feel about Shoshana? the The end of the stalker relationship between Shoshana and Private Zoller, as she lures him in, or actually pushes his way in, and then she lures him with sex, and as all men were like, oh, sex, and he turns around and gives up, completely turns his back on her, and she fucking fires three bullets into him, dropping him, and then she has a moment of, because she sees him on screen, it's at that moment I feel she sees him as someone not, not a Nazi soldier anymore, she sees him as a human being. Is that how you interpreted that, and what do you think she was thinking in the moment? Did she suddenly have... Empathy for a, a German soldier. Um, I I think she just wanted to kill him. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it was more just because it kind of is alluded to when she looks out into the auditorium to see if anyone kind of heard the gunshots, right? And it's covered up by his gunshots in in the movie. It is, and I wonder if it's more that, and she's kind of not on the back foot as such, but she's kind of taken for granted that she's sorted out. She's won. Um, and doesn't kind of you know see see what's coming coming because 
I think at this point, you know, she's about to she's about to kind of barbecue the most of the Third Reich. Um, and um, yeah, 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 I don't know that she necessarily has that empathy for anyone in a in a Nazi uniform. Did you think he was going to shoot her? I thought he was dead. <laughs> yes, same. Me too. Yeah. So did I. Yeah. Like, e- even on rewatches, I forget that's going to happen because again, so much happens and so many people die that I just yes. it, it's, it does kind of completely come out of nowhere. Speaking of people dying, how erect were you, gentlemen? Ne- when Donnie and Omar do what they do, yeah. So the wrist guns are re- were a real thing. They were created for uh, sailors, construction workers in the Pacific. As a last resort, so if they were attacked while they were being instructed, I don't know who they're hitting with that gun. But one, those are some pretty sweet fucking weapons. But when they burst into the orchestra box of Mr. Adolf Hitler and co., how excited were you when Tarantino just said, fuck it, revisionist history, we're lighting this bitch up. He doesn't get to commit suicide. He is eating it all right here. Was it three quarters, fully, William Defoe erect where it goes over your shoulder? I mean, it, it was it was definitely a sudden thing because, again, first time we watched it, yes. they kind of kept opening the door that Hitler was going to leave, like yeah. because you, you, oh yeah, I, okay, yeah, because he did because asked for some gum, yeah, asked for gum, yeah. like the door that Zola had left, so the door was open, like there was a way for him to get out and not have been affected by everything that was happening. So I don't think anyone was expecting that, let alone the second shot of them completely Swiss cheesing his face. <laughs> <laughs> it, again, it would be like watching the Titanic and them just having a nice pleasure cruise over to New York. Like it, it's just not like, like, like <laughs> yeah. no part of me thought they were good. This plan was going to work. You were waiting it to be like a big war tragedy, right? But yeah, it, it was it was insane. I'm still I'm still not entirely sure what I think about it. <laughs> there's there's the weird thing in that actually the plan kind of didn't work twice over, but then kind of in it failing twice, kind of did work so ah, yes um yeah but i, I i'm the same way you kind of thought that something something's going to happen but um yeah i absolutely um delighted with the way it turns especially with um <laughs> marcel being the one that kind of triggers the fire and everything and yeah there's 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 a hell of a lot especially from like how you know, talked down to years throughout throughout the movie, as as would mm-hmm. happen back then. Well, the yeah, the interesting thing is the person in this movie who brings down these Nazi pieces of shit is a black man, a Jewish woman, and two Jewish-born American soldiers yeah. are the ones who end yeah. it all for the the master race gets fucked big time. Did you know that there are obviously the Wilhelm scream, which is a very famous scream, is in it. Do you know the other scream of the Nazi soldier who goes? Out the actual theater that they show from, he like comes out over. I think the marquee when it explodes. Do you know who screamed at you? Uh, I, I I do not. But we also um, didn't Eli Roth and the other guy nearly die. Yes, um, thank you. I was going to bring that. <laughs> yes, they uh, were almost incinerated because yeah, the fi- the fire the the out of control fire got out of control. Yes, <laughs> it was over. It reached two thousand degrees Fahrenheit or a thousand. 93 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Meanwhile, Mr. Tarantino is sitting in a fireproof suit. <laughs> <laughs> Safely filming it from a distance. So, yes, there was actually almost a real death. We almost we almost said goodbye to... They almost went yod. He almost went yod on Lansdowne Street. He almost died. <laughs> yes, that. thank you for reminding me. Yes, I did have that as a note, that we almost lost Omar and Eli Roth. Take with that what you may. A couple of people almost died in the making of this film. Yeah. So the scream. Who, 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 who scream was yeah. it? 
they used stuntman mics. Very oh. nice. <laughs> yes, stuntman Mike's scream is used. You know, he's hanging out the door and he screams before they pull him out of the car. That is the scream they use for that moment. Now, we'll close this out with this. When he shoots Herman, that being Eldorain, in the stomach, leading us to believe that when Yudovich scalps him, he is still alive. And how much trouble do we think Eldo gets in for turning him over to his commanders with the swastika carved into his skull? Is he just going to get a... It's just going to get chewed out. He's been chewed out before. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, I think his response is, I mean, what's what? he's already survived a hanging, right? So fair, fair. He does have the scar to prove it. The other thing is it, it technically doesn't break any of the terms of the agreement. Uh, he there kills is... the right that uh... except, oh, shoot, uh... except shooting. No, Herman, he, he had to, he get, had to get him. He had to get him across the border safely. Yeah. Which, which technically fair. fair. I like he this. did. <laughs> But yeah, I like this. But yeah. I don't think pedantry is going to get you off with a court martial, right? <laughs> well, te- technically, sir, you said this, I'd, I'd, and we abided by this. I've watched it. I was watched too much uh, Maverick and Top Gun. <laughs> 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 That's the route he'd go down. Technicality. Uh, yeah, a lot of technicalities. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. Ian, I'll let you go first since Graham stole most of the thunder early on. Let's see if you can. Wow us with your answers. What was your favorite song on the soundtrack of Inglorious Bastards? I mean, I have a horrible feeling that Graham and my answers are all going to be perfect, perfectly identical. Um, but speaking as, and even this, this word for word is what Graham is going to say. Speaking as a man with a David Bowie tattoo, the answer is Cat People by David Bowie. <laughs> Isn't one of your dogs named yeah, Bowie too? Yep. Yeah. Yes. Um, depending, depending how good you are at editing. Listeners may have heard earlier in the episode. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 we've had we've had four guests today. Um, yeah, exactly the same. It's cat people. And if anyone's listened to our best use of Bowie episode, I wax lyrical about yes. why this is cat people in Inglorious Bastards is the best use of Bowie in cinema. So, yeah, absolutely the favorite song on the soundtrack. Fantastic, Mr. Jones. We'll start with you on this one. Who is your favorite character from this film? Uh, so I have to go down the, the same route as before. The best character, hands down, is Hans Lander. But, um, and actually this, I think it, the movie is stacks of great characters. I think Shazana's great. I really like Michael Fassbender as well. But uh, Aldo the Apache for me, he is he's just fantastic throughout. And um, yeah, as I said previously, like Ariva Dirce, um Seals it for me. <laughs> Mr. Harry's. Yeah, I mean, for me, again, the answer is Hans Lander, isn't it? Really? Like, if we're being honest with ourselves. Yeah. But if I had to pick someone else, um, I would I would probably go Shoshana, actually. I, I think she's incredible and, yeah, you know, it's just showing the power of, uh, you know, the power of revenge and getting through that stuff. But I think, again, yes. she's, she's yes. a character that I think gets lost amongst brilliant characters but she's an incredibly it's an incredibly Agreed. understated performance and again she deserves i think a lot more credit than she got because all of the credit went to christoph waltz <laughs> she shows a lot of uh emotional range in this yes. film Slight, uh, uh, you yeah, know, sure. even even when she says goodbye to marcel the the, the tears yeah. you know when because she knows that this is it they're not going to leave here she is definitely the the emotional powerhouse in the film as far as, you know, hitting all different spectrums of, of emotions of what she has to go through. That's slight aside as well, but uh, Melia Laurent has an album uh, that she released in 2011 that is fantastic. So check, give that give that a listen. Really? 
Mr. Harry's, what was your favorite line or monologue from Inglorious Bastards? Um, it is a tough one because I think so many of the, like, with a film like this, what's your favorite monologue or line can very easily become your favorite scene. Yes. Um, so I'm yes. just going to go short and I'm going for the meme of That's a Bingo. Ooh, that's a bingo. It, it's, it's, it's incredibly <laughs> delivered. And again, it is another, it's completely absurd in the middle of very serious yes. stuff. And that is just peppered yes. throughout the whole film. But it's whenever whenever anyone asks me for a line, not that many people do, <laughs> ask me for a line from Inglorious Bastards, that is the first one I think of. Mr. I mean, Jones. That's a bingo is probably one of my most used gifts uh, if I'm in a WhatsApp conversation. But, and I think this was a really hard one. I love the um, Samuel Jackson cameo voiceover for, St- for the Stiglitz introduction. Yes. I also think the final line of the movie is great because I think Tarantino actually meant that. Uh, this. Oh, uh, yes, he um, did. Yes, he did. But, oh, I, just, I just thought of another one. Okay. You, you go. But I think the best one has to be just Aldo's opening monologue to the bastards. It's long. It's a long old monologue, yes. but it's, it's brilliant. And it's, you know, like we said it earlier, we, I think we're all ready to uh, pick up our bayonets and, and bring, him his, uh, bring him his scalps. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to add uh, say goodbye to your Nazi balls. Serafina said to your Nazi balls. <laughs> Oh, that line should be used more really, in really our should, current really day. Should. Yes, Mr. Jones, mm. what was your favorite scene from the Amazing Inglorious Bastards? Uh, so I'll, go, I'll preface this with: there's only one winner, <laughs> but I'll say a close second was the the basement scene. I think that's really well played out, but I, I can't see past the opening scene. I will regularly say it's the best one of the best scenes in cinema. So um, yeah, uh, at Lepidite's farm is um, is up there for me as the best scene. Ditto. Well, I think. Um... I, I think like this, the basement scene, and again the strudel. If you were to make a list of the top ten Tarantino scenes, all three of them would probably be, you know, at least vying for a yes. spot in it, which is just insane. Yeah. From this one, it is a it is a film of very high highs, and yeah. Eli Roth. <laughs> <laughs> And that's a wrap on our ninth episode. I would once again like to thank my special guests, Ian Harris and Graham Jones, hosts of the podcast I would ask for, for joining me today. I had a fucking blast discussing our love of QT, Tom Brady, and Willem Dafoe's uncomfortably big penis, as well as taking a deeper look at Tarantino's first revisionist history film, Inglorious Bastards. Now you can find the link to the podcast I would ask for and the show's socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now be sure to join me again in two weeks as Sean Mott, host of the Metal Corner's podcast joins me for the first of two Bible studies this month as we tackle Tarantino's favorite scene, the glass of milk scene from Inglorious Bastards. And don't forget to check out my new monthly podcast with Steve Smith where we share our unpopular opinions about all things movies and TV called The Cheeky Bastards. Our first episode drops September 6th. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.